the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. This episode is a long time coming. We both wanted to do it in person, and it was planned a few times, but never worked out. So finally, here we are. My guest today is an author, podcaster, historian, and an expert on aviation mysteries. He's the creator and host of Chasing Earhart and Vanished. This dude's second book is out right now. Take the Money and Run, The Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. I'm a big fan of this guy's work, and if you aren't familiar with him, you will be a fan once you hear this. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Chris Williamson. All right, Chris, when was the first time you heard about D.B. Cooper? Huh. Probably the first time was uh, early on in, in my youth. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries was big when that came out, and Search Of was big. It's not really an uncommon story for a lot of your guests that have probably been on the show. Uh, but that's really the first time I ever heard of this guy who jumped out of this aircraft with all this money and the money had never been found, or at least most of the money had never been found. And it, it really left my consciousness. I never, you know, I'd always been fascinated with it, like a lot of the other cases that we cover for the show, but it, it wasn't Earhart. So I was too deep into Earhart and too deep into that whole rabbit hole to really put much more effort or, th or thought into anything else other than that. So it was always sort of like looming, always on the horizon. And I would hear about it from time to time when a new suspect would pop up or when Brad Melcher did his piece on Decoded and they talked about Kenny Christensen and all that. And I, that's, you know, I knew Brad from a while back, so I would be interested in that, you know, things of that nature. When Rackstraw would come out, you know, anything new, anything big, that would be enough to hit pop culture. That's when I'd hear about it. So, but early on it was then. Yeah, and if you're following Unsolved Aviation Mysteries, there's not too many. You know, the big one's definitely Amelia Earhart, D.B. Cooper, yeah. that new uh, Malaysian Airways plane that yeah. disappeared. Yeah, that's it. Those two are, are it. Uh, it's Earhart and Cooper. It always has been. I think it always will be until one of them or both of them get solved, you know, and then they'll have something else. There's a lot of other ones out there, but those two are always, you know, they almost transcend. Well, they do. They, they transcend aviation in general it goes into just general historical mystery now just they both happen to take place in the sky so and how old are you chris i'm 40 40 okay so you know we're we're about the same age it's interesting that we would sort of fall into these unsolved mysteries that happened way way before yeah. we were born yeah yeah it's true i mean there's a young you know it might be it might have something to do with sort of the you know the communal stuff now there's a there's an obsession with with true crime true crime has exploded and it's it's a multi-billion dollar you know market and db cooper fits right into true crime heists you know things of that nature uh, that have been unsolved and i think this idea that there's a crime at the center of this this whole story uh it kind of it kind of 
gets allows it to piggyback into sort of true crime and into that whole market. So DB Cooper never goes away. You know, he's we'll keep him infamous. You know, as people say in the book, like it's he's gonna be there until he's no longer there anymore until it's solved. Which I don't know if that's gonna happen, but it's it's white hot right now, as you know. How did you go from just a passing interest in the case to writing a book about it? We knew for season two that we were going to step outside of the Amelia Earhart bubble. Uh, At first, I didn't feel like that was something that was logical because I felt like people would not want to hear us talk about anything other than Amelia Earhart because we had gone so deep on that. We'd become known as that. And, you know, that's sort of just sort of the name of the game. And we knew when we did season two that we wanted to tackle some marquee cases. Our show is about really tackling a mixture of cases that are not so well known, like Amy Johnson, like Henry Avery and cases of that nature. Uh, And then cases that are huge, like Jack the Ripper and John Wilkes Booth, Amelia Earhart. Well, D.B. Cooper, it's, it's just a matter of when, you know, it's as you just talked about, they're they're very well related cases. You know, everybody knows aviation cases, Amelia Earhart and D.B. Cooper. That's it. Those are the two big ones. So it, it became something that was just an obvious thing. And we did the show. And once we did the show and I wrote the first book, I never intended to write anything beyond Earhart. That's kind of the story of my life. But then we thought, well, you know, people were asking for uh, a second book and and there was sort of some interest there and Cooper just seemed like to be the natural fit. We had the, the we had the anniversary looming. It just worked. And so we decided to take what we recorded a year prior and then, you know, just basically put it into book form and then add a bunch of retrospectives and bells and whistles and that's what that's what Take the Money and Run is. What is the difference between the Amelia Earhart community and the DB Cooper community? Well, I can tell you, uh, I, I'll only tell you my experience because I, I don't want to speculate on anybody else's experience. I will tell you that the, the Cooper community has been overwhelmingly welcoming to us. Uh, not only, of course, yourself, but everybody we reached out to on this thing, with a few very minor exceptions, ha- you know, overwhelmingly accepted and were open and were honest and willing to divulge their work and their theories and their ideas. And the Earhart case... I remember when we did it originally, we were nobodies in that case, and we were reaching out to the biggest names in the case, and we had a you know a handful of folks say yes, but we had a really a, a lot of them. It was probably like maybe thirty percent of them said yes, and seventy percent said no, and so it's because there's so much aggressive finger pointing, and and the, the camps were so aggressive in the Earhart case, and it's it's been. A mystery for longer than Cooper has. It's got 30 years plus on that on that case. It just seems to uh, be a very different sort of animal altogether. But Cooper, my experience with Cooper it was that it was very, everybody was very welcoming. You know, I mean, I, I that's really all I can say. Everybody was like, yeah, let's do it. When I remember when I reached out to you, it was yeah, let's do it. And then you heard what we were gonna do. You're like, uh, maybe not. And then you know, <laughs> we went back and thought it. We kind of took it back to formula a little bit. And then we started looking at a different, walking a different path. And then you were on board and. And then once you got on board, I think everybody just sort of fell into place and got on board and wanted to talk to us about D.B. Cooper. So I got to experience a little bit of sort of maybe what you've experienced over the years with that. Yeah, I think in in the D.B. Cooper world, there are there aren't necessarily camps that are split off. Mm. There might be one or two groups that don't play nicely with everyone else. Mm. But for the most part, everyone's sort of in the same places talking about the same thing. Sure. Uh, and open to 
the idea of uh, other suspects, other ideas. But yeah, why do you think the Earhart community is so fractured? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, there, the Earhart case is really filled with a lot of of anger and just bitterness and, and a lot of pain. There, you know, a lot of people have gone to their graves not knowing who had wanted to know badly, you know, more than anything else in their lives. And there's also a lot of people in that case that are so stuck on trying to prove one specific theory over everything else that it becomes almost toxic at a certain point. And I think you've got, it really has a lot to do with the demographic. That case, you know, we're starting to see it now, but I've said, I've said this before, there's just a spectacular collapse in any kind of collaboration there in that case at all. It's very, uh, everybody's keeping their, you know, their stuff to their self. They're not sharing information. Nobody's really open to the idea that it's possible that multiple theories could sort of make up the ultimate ending to what happened to Earhart and Noonan back in 37. With Cooper, I feel like you're either on, you know, you're either you're on one of two sides, as you just mentioned. He either never made the jump, like, or you know, he died on impact. He didn't, he didn't survive the jump, or he did. My experience is that it's overwhelmingly in the direction that he survived the jump. That not only would this jump have been possible, but it would have been easy, you know, for certain people, especially suspect lists. When you start looking at some of these guys, it's like this would have been nothing. It would have been like a walk in the park for him. Uh, especially when I was introduced to, you know, the suspect who we sort of name in the book and kind of get more aggressive on toward the, the back half of the book. Uh, it just felt, uh, you know, it just felt more, uh, more obvious. But yeah, that's, it's really two things. Well, in Earhart, there's five or six different camps and they're very aggressive. Crash and Sync doesn't really mix well with Japanese capture. Japanese capture doesn't mix well with Buka and, and Castaway doesn't mix well with any of them, really, frankly. And so you've got all this aggression and all this anger, and it's like layered on top of each other. So you got all this shit that goes all the way to the top, you know, and then at the very bottom, the core of the case are factual data, what we actually have to work with, uh, amazing work that's being done on all fronts, on all theories. Uh, but you, you got you to gotta dig through a lot of shit to get to that. And, and the Cooper case, you know, I feel like maybe you could, you could try to maybe really make the same argument, but it just feels like it's not as bad as with my limited experience. It's not as bad as digging through the Earhart case because there's so much data. Nobody agrees on anything in the Earhart case. You can take the most minuscule data point and you're going to have five or six different disagreements in that one data point. And that's, that's really, really the main difference. And I think that that's really contributed to why the Earhart case is, has really stalled as long as it has. And it's just, you know, it never gets solved because of those things. So, Will either of these cases ever be solved? I have hope that they will. You know, look, the the Cooper thing is, I mean, everything's white hot with Cooper right now. I don't have to tell you that. I mean, it, you know, there's multiple suspects now, active investigations going on. I think that's fantastic. I think the more you prod, the more you poke, and the more you dig, the more likely you're going to find something. Someone's going to be aggressive at tracking down some ridiculous piece of information that nobody thought about, and it's going to break the case wide open. I think that's what you do, and that's how you solve cases like these ones that have just been you know, dormant for so long. Uh, Earhart's no exception. And there's active investigations going on as we speak right now on that. Uh, you know, and I think somebody's going to crack something wide open and it's going to be a, a whole different thing at that point. Now, what we're going to find out is going to be interesting. That's where it's going to go really fun is, you know, what actually happened with Earhart? Was she a spy? Was she not a spy? You know, if that gets determined, it's like, well, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of historical reputation that can be ruined. Cooper, just some dude, nobody knows. You know, it's like like you talk about in the in the book and in the original show. He could be you could walk by this guy a million times in an airport and never really know who it is. Earhart's America's sweetheart. She's like the biggest icon ever, the most photographed and videographed woman ever at the time of her disappearance. They're, they couldn't be more different. But, you know, these cases seem to be simultaneous in the way that they're argued and the way that they're researched. That's a really good point. Yeah, she's the most famous. He's totally unknown. We could have seen him a million times. He could have been a news reporter mm -hmm. that was on TV and we wouldn't know. And it's interesting that you know, she disappears. We have no idea really where she went. Cooper, we knew exactly where he was. The search area is narrowed down to a small piece of ground in southwest Washington. Yeah. But we never found anything there. Yeah. So it's like the the suspect in the Cooper one is the mystery where Earhart, it's where'd she go? Right. And to your point, like, well, was she a spy? Yeah. What went on? Is there some sort of government cover up? Yeah. There's a little bit of that in the DB Cooper case. Like maybe the FBI or the CIA knows exactly who this is mm -hmm. and either they're covering it up or it makes them look bad. So they just sort of turned a blind eye to it. Right. But I'm, I'm not sure about, about that either way. Well, yeah. let's let's get right into Cooper and see how okay. much you know about this case, Chris. Okay. All right. How did he get to the airport? Uh, well, we don't know how he got to the airport, <laughs> so that's the thing. We, we he, he has no beginning and he has no end. Well, we don't know the ending yet. So he just basically shows up at the airport, and uh, he buys a ticket, buys a one-way ticket. And uh, I know this is this from you, but the gate agent asks him what his name is. He writes. He says his name is Dan Cooper. And so he gate agent doesn't think nothing of it. And I've talked to gate agents that are going around that are doing it now. And it's true. Like if you say your name is Dan Cooper and you've got now, you got to have ID and all that. But at that point, he didn't need to have ID. Just paid the cash money for it. One was it $20 or something for yeah, that one $20 ticket? with tax. That's ironic, right? So he probably throws down a 20 and some, you know, a few, few pennies and there's some change and gets on board that, that aircraft. He's one of the last, if not the last aboard the aircraft. Right. Mm -hmm. And he just sits in the back and, I think, you know, when you say something really great in the book, it's true. Before he hands uh, the, the, the note to Flo, there is no story. And when he hands that, that note to Flo and she reads it and she knows what's going on, that's when the story begins. That's when it starts. Everything up to that is, you know, we have to speculate backwards now because it's like, well, how did he get there? Who was he? You know, all this other stuff. Did he have an accomplice maybe? Uh, you know, did someone drive him there? Can you put any of these suspects in that area, you know, at that time? And that's that's kind of one of the tough parts about this case, I think, in its in its entirety. But, yeah, he just shows up, which I kind of love because it's kind of like the guy just pops into into existence as far as everybody else knows. And the rest is history. Cooper, they peg his age mid to late 40s, right? which is an unusual age to commit a daring crime, one where you have to be literally a daredevil to escape from. Mm-hmm. What do you think that says about who he is? I'm going to steal a lot of stuff from you guys in this book, but it's, and it's just true. It tells me, it tells me that he had experience. Like you say, that's another, another line of yours in the book, but it's true. This is a guy that I, I really feel like he really had the experience to, to make this happen. This wasn't a, a one-off thing. This wasn't a guy that had just a couple of jumps behind him. Uh, you said something in the book that really sort of gave me chills the first time I heard it. Uh, and I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but when 
Right before he jumps, he sends Tina Mucklow back to the cockpit for the rest of the flight crew. And she turns around and she looks at him and she, he's putting the parachute on. And she mentions that it looked like he had done that many times before, that he was maybe mm-hmm. intimately comfortable with uh, that particular parachute. And I feel like someone of that age had probably a, a good deal of experience where a jump like this probably wouldn't have been anything, you know, for him. And that's, again, that's why we get into sort of, we get into the Braden stuff. We start looking at Braden's career and you start looking at some of these other guys' careers and like the McCoys and all that brave people, amazing careers in and of themselves. But I feel like this is a guy that in his mid forties, no problem. He would have been fit. He would have had the experience. He would have made probably maybe a thousand of these jumps. I mean, who knows? I mean, six, seven, 800 of these jumps, take your pick. Uh, so it would have been nothing. It would have been no problem. Yeah. And a guy in his mid to late forties in 1971, odds are he served in the military at some point, you know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, still going on. Just built different. They're just built differently then. Oh, a hundred percent. And if you rounded up everyone in America who had been skydiving more than once, I think today, this is just a guess, but I think today the vast majority of those people don't have military experience. Yeah. But I think in 1971, you round up everyone with more than one jump and it's got to be like 90% yeah. had served in the military because the skydiving community was so small yeah. in the late 60s, early 70s. And most of those people were dudes who had served, yeah. who loved it and wanted to do it now that they were out of the military. Yeah. Vietnam was fresh. I mean, fresh, active, you know, even going on in certain areas still like it was still it was still very raw. You had the tail end, you know, you had World War II that was not that far in the Korean War. You know, all that stuff was, you had a lot of people that had military experience at that time. Anybody who was in their mid forties as you, yeah, it's, it's almost a foregone conclusion, almost as much as if, you know, you could say, Hey, this guy absolutely landed this jump. No problem. This guy absolutely had military experience. I mean, I just feel like it just doesn't, eh, this is a one-off. No, probably not. Uh, Unless he was a professional skydiver somewhere, you'd have to account for the ability to stay calm like he stayed, uh, you, to, to keep the demeanor that he kept, to be able to think, I mean, think of what you've got here. You've got a guy on a plane that's able to successfully skyjack a plane, deplane all of the passengers off the airplane without anybody knowing until after the fact that they were being skyjacked. Kudos and credit to the flight crew, not, this is not just Cooper, but everybody involved, including Cooper, was able to keep this quiet enough to where nobody was disturbed. That again, that tells me this guy had experience. This wasn't a one-off. This wasn't his first rodeo, as they say. However you want to say it, you know, this guy knew what he was doing, and he knew how to keep his calm. And I think somebody, only somebody that had lived through lots of intense situations in those conditions in the air, you know, could keep as calm as he did. You know, he was smoking lots of cigarettes and all that stuff too. Of course, uh, that helps. But, uh, you know, still, you're in a, a really shitty situation. It could go bad real fast. I mean, we talked about that on the show. Like, one thing turns. That river turns one way, and you're done. Why do you think he was able to remain calm, cool, and collected and have total control over the situation? I think it's because he'd done it before. Not a, not a skyjack, but I think it's because he'd, he'd done these jumps before. He knew how, how it had to get done. He knew what he wanted. I think he had studied. I think there's a good... A, a, I don't want to say amount of evidence. It's, I'm speculating, but I think there's a, the odds are good that he probably did some serious homework and studied this flight or studied what he was going to do. Maybe not this particular flight, but he studied the aircraft. You know, we talk about it on the show and in the book. This guy knew more about the aircraft, that particular aircraft, than you know even the flight crew knew about it. 
this is a guy who knew what he was doing, who did the homework. I think if you're if you're that prepared, it just it just it hits different. It feels different. It's you know you can you can get all that excess shit out of the way and you can just be calm, and you can just be relaxed. You know what the end game is. You know what your end result's going to be, um, and you just know like you know because you've done it so many times before. So you think this was definitely planned out and not drawn on a cocktail napkin no. earlier that morning. No, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we talked about, we talked about Booth, uh, the John Wilkes Booth at, at ad nauseum in the show. We, we went really deep on that. And Booth, you know, didn't know he was going to, he knew he wanted to kill Lincoln. You know, they had successful, they had attempted a, a kidnapping attempt a couple years earlier and Booth knew he was going to murder or assassinate the president, but he didn't know how. He was waiting for his opportunity. He only found out that Lincoln was going to be at Ford's Theater that night, the night of the assassination. He found out just, you know, early in the late morning. And so he goes and he does all of his recon. And, uh, you know, this is a terrible thing to say, but to Booth's credit, he's able to do enough recon and make this plan go, you know, quickly enough to where they could actually strike that night. I think with Cooper... I think he actually waited for a lengthier amount of time. I think he studied it. I think he worked on it. I think he figured, how am I going to get the money? How is this going to work? Am I going to slip notes? You know, what am I going to do here? How am I going to exit this plane? You know, obviously he knew about the plane. I think maybe you could make the argument that he just started studying up on the aircraft then. Uh, maybe he didn't know much about the aircraft prior to that. But it's all, you know, it's all speculation. But I think if you look at it, if you look at it even badly, uh, you know, you really you start to realize that, hey, this guy... This guy pre-planned this. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I definitely think it was pre-planned. I think the the date and the timing of it obviously lends to the fact that this is planned. Mm -hmm. He had a long weekend. He takes off shortly before it's going to be dark. So he knows he's going to be jumping in the dark. I, I tend to believe it's highly planned. Yeah. Chris, how do you know that the plane could be jumped? Well, I think that has to tie into to the research he did. He probably did on the on the aircraft. You know, the idea that the stairs could lower, he could make the escape off the stairs, you know, away from everybody else. He probably he probably wanted to deplane everybody. I'm pretty sure that was part of the plan. He knew he was going to get onto a plane where it wasn't just going to be him. So he wanted to get everybody off the plane. I think he just knew that if I could get everybody off the plane successfully and I could get to the money or get the money brought to me the way I want it, then I could exit out the back of this plane. I think he probably thought it was tailor-made. It was perfect. It was like, this is, I don't have to exit through a cockpit. I don't have to exit anywhere near the front of the plane or anywhere near where, where pilots might be or someone could grab me or whatever. I'm totally separated from the rest of the flight crew at that point, especially when I tell Tina to get to the front then it's, you know, it's just me and those stairs and that's it. I think he knew. He just knew. It talks, we talk a little bit about that in the book too with him arguing, sort of going back and forth with the, uh, with the flight crew. Hey, this, you know, we can't take off with the stairs down or we, you know, we can't whatever. And he's like, whatever, we'll just deal with it in the air. I feel like he probably knew. He probably knew the answer to that already. It's like, okay, well. But how did he know? How did he know that that plane could be jumped? You know, I think it's it's possible he could have had experience on those aircraft. I mean, it's possible in Vietnam they had aircrafts like that. I know Dr. Robert Edwards was in the book, and we, he talked a little bit about them jumping with uh, with those types of aircrafts and dropping, maybe doing um, supply drops and even dropping men into certain areas and things. If he had done it before, which, you know, I think Braden did, I think he had maybe participated in some of those jumps, or if he was going to be, those jumps were going to happen in those areas, he probably would have been one of the people to make those jumps. Seems I think he like would have just known. He, it's like, oh, yeah, sure. It's like, I know that I can, you know, pop the trunk on my car with, uh, you know, with my remote. And I know that I could, if I drive off, I could hit the, you know, the trunk and it'll lower. I know that for a fact. So if we're in an aircraft or something and I know that these stairs can lower and they can raise, I could escape out the back of them. 
you know, it's just, it's just part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Uh, it's so interesting to me, like how many people on planet earth in November of 71 knew that you could jump from a Boeing 727. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Cause a bunch of the skydivers I've talked to, uh, like Mark Meltzer, he said when he first heard about it, he was like, I didn't even know you could jump from that plane. Yeah. We all thought that you couldn't jump from a J. It would be impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it, yeah, the only way I can describe it is if this guy had not only known it, but he known it because he'd maybe found out secondhand, but I think it's because he'd done it. I think it's because he'd done it. Whoever he was, whether we're totally, completely wrong and it's not Braden, whoever he was, I think he had done it. I think he had made that jump before. I don't think it was the first time he jumped out of that particular aircraft. Well, it's interesting he knew the whole flight configuration. It wasn't just like the one thing he knew was that you could jump out the back. No, he asked for a very specific flight configuration. Yeah. But then also didn't know how to lower the aft stairs. That's true. Which I think is such an interesting combination of knowledge to have. Yeah. It reminds me sort of like a, a really high-level race car driver who could tell you everything about the car, but he might not even know like the displacement of the engine. Right, or right. he couldn't fix anything on it, but he could tell you, oh, the, the spring on the front right corner is a little soft. We need yeah. to tighten that up. Yeah, you don't always know. I mean, you don't know everything. Uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's... That's pretty obvious, but I think you know if you if you look at what he did. Look, this is a guy who committed a perfect the perfect crime. I mean, it's it's the perfect sure like crime. It. It's never been you know we don't know uh, you know I, th there were so many really cool ideas that were floated past me during the original recording of the show and in the writing of this book when I would go back and do more research and have follow up conversations with people. You know, maybe you know, when we get to the money and stuff, it's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, he didn't get to the money because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, holy shit, I'd never thought of that before. It's like, that's actually pretty brilliant, you know, and that kind of ties into some of uh, some of the, the pop culture, you know, stuff when it comes to D.B. Cooper and, you know, people talking about him being Robin Hood-esque and all that stuff and stick it to the man and that kind of deal. You know, you hear that all the time. But, you know, there's some interesting possibilities that might actually play into that, which is kind of cool. It just adds to the mystique, I guess. Was his bomb real? I tend to think it, it probably wasn't, it probably was not real. Uh, the only reason why I would say that is because, you know, and I ask Eric Eulis this question, like theoretically, if he jumps out and that bomb is real and he hits the ground too aggressively, that bomb explodes and he's like blown into smithereens and there is no coup. There's, that's where you're never going to find the money. It's like blown into, you know, that would I, be a bummer. I feel like also if, there's an air marshal on board or if there's anybody anybody who if it gets out of hand and a passenger challenges them or something of that nature and that bomb is real that is a, a a real i mean talk about going south real fast right so i feel like maybe he he knew enough to make the bomb look real uh and i think he just i think he just played everybody like a violin and i think the bomb is never real now it's it's possible that maybe he could he could do something to activate it and make it be real uh, but it's like a, it's almost like a, a fail safe. Like, well, if you don't do this last little step, you don't connect this last little thing, the bomb is like dormant. It's, it's not going to, nothing's going to happen to it. Right. This is what makes it, you know, a, a, an explosive. Uh, it's possible it could have been that kind of a situation. He just never armed it. Uh, but I feel like, you know, didn't he showed, he showed, he showed the stewardesses, right? Did he show both yep. of them or just flow or both of them? Did they both get a look at it? 
I think I'm Tina did, sure right? I'm not sure if he opened it for Tina. I know he did show it to Flo. So he showed it to Flo, maybe just to scare her. Yeah, it's supposed to be a battery, eight red cylinders, and some wires. Like your stereotypical cartoon, cartoon briefcase bomb. bomb. Yeah, yeah. And the rumors that he had some kind of a... Uh, like a brown paper sack with him. I know we talked a little bit about that back and forth with different people. And I mean, we don't know, is that, we don't know if that's even true that he actually had a sack. And if he did have a sack, what could have been in the sack? You know, could it have been something for the bomb? Could it have been something else? We don't know. What do you think was in it? I haven't the faintest idea. Someone floated the idea that his boots were in it. Like his, like he had his jumping boots in it, but I don't think that that would, I mean, you'd probably just wear them, right? I mean, if you're going to get on a, if you're going to get on a plane, why would you have to, why would you want to stop and take, five minutes to tie to put on new shoes and everything that doesn't make a lot of sense yeah to me. and boots from that era if you put your slacks over the top they could go yeah. as dress shoes right I mean, right i think i don't think anybody was really paying a whole lot of attention to the to the shoes he was wearing i know it's in the description we talk an awful lot about the sketches and the descriptions well, in the description so. they describe his shoes as loafers which right I'm not sure I even believe that anymore. I don't think so either. It really, it ties back to what we were talking about earlier. I feel like if this guy had the experience that I've been sort of BSing about this whole time, I think it would be kind of odd that he, that that kind of a guy would jump with loafers on. I think he'd probably have some kind of lace-up boots you could or something you could tie to your feet that you wouldn't it would slip off your feet, especially if you land and you're successful and your shoes are gone. Well, then it's like, well, then you got to trek through all this terrain with no shoes on. That's going to make it even worse. So I feel like, logistically speaking, they probably got that wrong. It was probably some kind of traditional tie-up shoe that maybe looked in passing like a loafer. I mean, how many details are you going to remember about the person sitting next to you? Uh, you know, we, we, we make a lot of comment. Mark Zaid in our very own book says something really great that is it's really true. When was the last time you were on a flight? Or, you know, since it's post-COVID now, when's the last time you went and sat down at a fast food restaurant? Could you identify the person sitting next to you? Of course you couldn't. Why would you care? Why would you be paying any attention? You know, so Tessa talks about that in the lineups. Well, I might tell you that he's got a big nose, he's got blue eyes or whatever, but like if I don't know the rest of it, I'm just going to, my mind's just going to start filling in gaps because that's what the human mind does. That's what nature is. Yeah, nobody knew to pay attention to him. Right. Nobody knew to pay attention to him until after the fact. Oh yeah, I saw him. He was, you know, he had this, 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 and this, and this. I was like, okay, well, I mean, shit, you got to really, I'll give you a concrete example. I know we're kind of going off of a tangent a little bit. Uh, when I was, when I flew out to LA for the history thing, okay, I left from Florida. It was a five hour flight, ironically enough, right? From Florida to LA. And I sat next to a young girl. The only thing I could tell you for sure is that she had kind of long blonde hair. That's it. She had a hoodie pulled over. She had her earbuds on. She was looking at her phone. I'm sitting right next to her. We never made eye contact. I couldn't tell you how, she'd never stood up. I couldn't tell you how tall she was. I couldn't tell you any discerning features. If you put her in a lineup with five similar looking women, there is no way I would be able to tell you for sure that this was the girl I was sitting on the plane with. Now, Cooper didn't have his, a hoodie on or anything, but he had glasses. I mean, for that time, he, you, know, you might say he looked unusual because he had glasses on and things of that nature, but you go back to the idea that he looked like every other guy. And it's just kind of like some dude in a business suit that happened to have glasses on. That's all you've got. He truly did look like every other guy. And I mean, the one passenger who really got a good look at him was Bill Mitchell. And the only reason he Cooper stuck out in his mind is because he was jealous that the, quote, geeky old guy mm-hmm. was getting all the attention from the young, beautiful stewardess. Right. And that's his thought, you know, geeky old guy. Right. And he wasn't even really paying attention to him. It's just that he noticed... Hey, I'm this 
I'm a young college guy. She should be sitting over here by me. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, another thing too, cause you know, and I'm sure we'll get into the height and stuff a little bit. Cause that's so, that's so contested, but it's, it's, you know, he was sitting down the whole time in a, in a plane. It's hard. It's a lot harder to tell how tall someone is to the letter. I mean, I'm not saying you can guess, but there's always like this idea of like, well, there's a, a three or four inch room for error. That's that's logical to me because I've seen people that have stood up that are like four or five inches taller than I thought they were going to be when they stood up, you know. And I've seen people that are like a lot shorter than I thought they were going to be when they stood because you kind of really can't tell depending on how they're sitting, what the environment is. Sitting in an airplane, it's more cramped. You know, how tall is someone sitting down? Kind of tough to tell. I totally agree with you. The height I'm willing to move around and play with a little bit. I'm even willing to move around on eye color. Okay, you're. Yeah your suspect has hazel eyes or green eyes because you have one stewardess see his eye color one time. Yeah. So I'm willing to be a little bit flexible on that one too because you really only have the eyewitness accounts from from Tina and Flo. Alice got a look at him, but she didn't really interact with him the way Tina and Flo did. And Flo was whisked away pretty quickly. So, I mean, she got that initial reaction with him or that initial interaction with him rather and then tina basically stepped in and and did the brunt of everything five hours on the plane with them lighting his cigarettes i mean did they have conversation i'm sure that they did oh yeah i love the fact that she lights his cigarettes yeah i mean you know that's there's there's conversation there i always wonder about you know what was said you know there's you know, I, I don't want to speculate in anybody's, you know, memory or anybody's thought process or anything like that. But I got to I got to imagine that there were probably things said between Cooper and Mucklow that have never really been talked about that maybe either Tina only Tina would know. And Tina maybe has never said uh, or Tina maybe has not remembered. Uh, how do you you know, 51 years ago, how are you going to remember? I mean, you're going to remember the situation, certainly, surely, but. Are you going to remember every conversa- every word in a five-hour-long conversation? Potentially. I mean, if they didn't talk much and they just talked every once in a while, then that makes it a little easier for remembering. But it's, you know, it's, it's tough. And that's where you start getting some of the, you know, the whole idea of, like, what was said, what was not said, what was done, what was not done. You know, and you start, everybody starts overanalyzing every little thing, the cigarettes. And, you know, did he stand up? Did he interact with anybody? Did he take his glasses off? You know, uh, was he aggressive? Was he non-aggressive? And everything gets overanalyzed to the T, as you are well aware, you know, in these cases. When he gives Florence that note, she sort of understandably loses it. (laughs) It's a very scary situation. And Tina very bravely steps in and handles it in an incredible manner. Absolutely. And and keeps keeps her shit together and is almost professional in, in this hijacking situation. Do you think that's more credit to Tina or do you think that is part of Cooper's ability to control the situation by making them comfortable? That's a fantastic question. I I wouldn't want to take anything away from Tina. I I think to her credit, she was able to, to stay calm. I think to maybe match Cooper's demeanor. I think if someone's smart enough to know that okay this guy's acting really calm right now so my my job is now to keep him in that state i think she probably had the wherewithal she probably had the ability to 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 sort of to read the room so to speak to read the situation and but to cooper's credit because we don't know who he was we don't know anything about him and really this now just becomes all speculation i feel like everything else that adds up 
points in the direction that Cooper, it really probably has a little bit of credit to Cooper for that too, for being able to sort of, he's in control of the situation a thousand percent. It's now his situation to either lose everything or to be successful. And I think he knew if we're, if we're sort of going with the idea that he studied up on this plane, he studied up on this plan and everything, he probably knew that he would have to stay very monotone, very baseline, very straightforward on, in, in his demands, uh, very specific with his demeanor and everything if he was going to keep somebody from freaking out. He certainly didn't want to alert passengers. So if he could you know, work with Tina and they could sort of have an understanding and keep it quiet, then I think it was going to be successful for the both of them. She, for her, she wouldn't lose her life. The crew wouldn't lose their lives. Thank God the passengers wouldn't lose their lives. And for him, he's able to successfully make the jump and get what he wants ultimately, which is the money. You know, that's what he wanted. The the copycats, all of them were either violent or crazy. Yeah. Um, they made a scene. Everyone was well aware of them. Many of them, people were suspicious before the hijacking even took place. Right. And Cooper is totally the opposite. Yeah. So I just, I find that so interesting that you have this guy who's older than the other copycats, mm -hmm. whose MO is completely different from the others. Yeah. But the copycats all survived their jump. Right. Does that tell you that Cooper survived his jump? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think it tells me also that the, the copycats, none of them were Cooper. That's, that's the one thing. Look, I love McCoy. McCoy's story is probably the cool. I mean, it's, there's, there's so many great stories that you told me when we sat down and did our initial conversation and just all the off the record stuff we've talked about. And of course, listening to your show, if, if you remove Thanksgiving Eve from all of these suspect stories, they have some really incredible stories in and of themselves. McCoy's no exception. But that's why I believe McCoy wasn't Cooper, is because when McCoy makes his skyjack, yeah, he's successful. He gets 500 grand, so he more than, you know, almost triples Cooper's, you know, loot. But he's, it's ugly. It's not, a, it's not a, it's not a clean, it's not a clean procedure. If he had done it, if he was Cooper, and he had done what Cooper had done, just a little while before that, you would think that that would give that guy a lot more confidence in that idea that, okay, I can do this again now, no problem. I know what to do, I know how to handle myself. But the fact that it sort of goes the polar opposite of that is really interesting in and of itself and tells me that either he, something happened that spooked him and he got too nervous. I mean, he spent the money, you know, he spent some of the money right away. I mean, he did get ratted out, but I mean, you figure like, you know, if you're gonna pull this off, you're gonna copycat your own crime you're probably gonna, if anything, are gonna improve on it. You're gonna think about different ways you can make it even better, you can be even tighter, you can be even quicker on the, you know, whatever it is. But the fact that it just goes sort of a different direction altogether just tells me that none of those copycats were Cooper. Yeah, McCoy, you know, McCoy did improve a couple of things over Cooper's skyjacking. And I think his plan was better than Cooper's, but his execution, execution. was so poor. He drew attention to himself in the airport. Mm -hmm. He drew attention to himself before the plane took off. Didn't he leave his note? Like a, Drew told me that, and I was like, Jesus. I mean, that's he like. He left his note in uh, <laughs> in the airport, a yeah. manila envelope. And then when they, everyone boarded the plane, somebody noticed the manila envelope sitting on a chair. So they run back into the plane like, hey, did somebody leave this manila envelope? 
Um, and it was his hijacking notes. I'm telling you right now, if thank God that was in a manila envelope, because if that was loose and I would have found it, I would have read that shit. <laughs> I mean, who's not going to read it, right? You're going to, well, what is this? You're going to open it up and read it. Yeah. If but, I found something at the airport and if it didn't have a name on the outside, I would crack it open and be like, oh, what, yeah, because you're going to try to figure out, you know, who it belongs to. And that's the best way to do it, right? You're not yeah. just going to take it to the lost and found or something. And if they find it, they're going to open it and read it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's just very different. That Cooper, the Cooper thing was, it just it was it just felt very different. Um, it 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 was executed very different, obviously, and it just it just feels like he was way above a lot of these other suspects. And maybe you know maybe he was just so much better than everybody else. You know, yeah, the execution was was better and and all that. But I feel like nobody had done it, so we had the element of surprise. This was a very crazy thing. I mean, you know, so yeah, I mean, all that works positively for him you know, in this element of surprise and just getting on this plane and really blending in until he, you know, couldn't blend in anymore. So he had to make his move. What about my pet theory that Cooper may have known McCoy? Yeah, I like that idea. I, you know, I, I like the idea that he had an accomplice. Uh, you know, I like, that's when we start talking about like the, you know, Nikki's, I think Nikki mentioned talking about like Dwayne Weber potentially being his accomplice. And that's kind of how, you know, Joe ended up knowing all the stuff that Joe knew and, and all. I mean, I don't, I'm not as versed in that as, as, of course, as you are and a lot of the other Joe people. Joe sort of had like a puppet master theory and a yeah. lot of these suspects are connected. Yeah. I mean, I. Interesting and funny. Hey, I like about. it. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy, man. I connect, connect stuff, make stuff fit. When you don't have anything, we don't know. You know, I say this about Earhart all the time. We don't know any more. We have a lot of speculation, lots of theory, endless amount of that. What I'm talking about is factual data. We don't have anything more in the Earhart case factually now than we did on the day after they disappeared. All we know is what is in historical record for sure. Everything else at that point is speculation. It's kind of the same thing with Cooper. We really don't, we don't know anything, but the only difference is we don't know anything about the beginning either. And that's even more frustrating, I can imagine, because this guy just pops up out of nowhere and he exists for about five hours and that's it. And mm-hmm. now he's you know, he's existed, you know, eternally in our pop culture, you know, and, and, and in your podcast and in all these countless books like mine and all these, you know, I'm sure there'll be two or three more books coming out next year in the next year. You know, it's that's where he lives now. And I feel like that's it's interesting to see kind of how that's all played out. Um, but I feel like, you know, the more you can put into it, if some of these suspects are related, potentially, if they work together, if they knew each other, hey, that's, I like it. I mean, let's run with it. Let's, let's, let's try to eliminate that. That's kind of what I like to do is let's not try to prove it. Let's try to eliminate it. Is it possible that he knew somebody, that he had a connection? If it's Braden, then that's not only possible, it's probable that he had connections. Uh, you know, the whole idea of him doing, and that ties back to the homework, that Elsinore thing and the whole Lake Elsinore ghost thing and the idea of him going to see uh, Lyle Cameron potentially, you know, a lot asking about drop zones in the Pacific Northwest and all this crazy shit. And he had like the same boots, you know, that you get into that. And that's, that's part of the case we start talking about and trying to build for Braden. But like, you know, there's possible that they, they, whoever he was, he had connections. Maybe he was above the FBI. I love the idea of him maybe being CIA. That was sort of the birth of that at that time. You know, with Singlob and a lot of the people that Braden knew, you know, I mean, hey, possible? Sure. Do you think it's possible that had that Cooper had an accomplice? This this is something I've thought about quite a bit because the more people you start to involve, the mm-hmm. less likely it is. I mean, that's like 
you know, 9-11's an inside job. Okay, well, do you know how many people you would need to right. have involved in that? We never went to the moon. Yeah, everybody, we never everybody, moon. everybody would the have to fake it. The more people that you need to keep a, something a secret, the less likely it is to be true. So yeah. I wonder, did Cooper have an accomplice? Because if it is, like, it's his buddy or it's his little brother or his yeah. pal from the military, maybe that guy never talks but the idea that you have multiple people go to their deathbed without coming forward which of course we've had hundreds of people come forward and say they were involved in it but yeah that that's another subject to get to but do you think cooper had an accomplice or he was acting completely solo in this i think so it's going to give you kind of a, a, a cop-out answer. I, I think it's certainly possible that he had an accomplice, somebody maybe to drive to get him out of the way, uh, to get him out of the area quick. Uh, uh, but I really feel like the, the more I research this case and the more I talk to the people that knew a lot more about it than I do, the more I just felt like he probably acted solo. Uh, I feel like that that plays into the idea a lot more that uh, that nobody ever discovered the rest of the money and nobody knows who this guy was is because the only one who ever knew who D.B. Cooper was was D.B. Cooper himself. And I feel like if you're going to be successful and you're going to pull this thing off, if there's nobody to tell, on the flip side of that, there's nobody to tell and nobody to rat you out, kind of like McCoy, you know, what happened to McCoy. There's nobody to rat you out here. So if he keeps it to himself... You know, I don't buy the whole idea that, you know, when you start talking about it, it really becomes really clear. He burned the money to stay. You know, I don't I don't buy any of that stuff either. But I feel like whatever he did with the money or wherever the money's at right now, I think there's only one person that knows and he's probably dead. And that's Cooper. So he'd probably be dead at this point. That's he probably I mean, I guess there's a chance. And I was talking to Dave Futterman about this. There's a I mean, there's a eh, there's a chance he could be. I think even Tom said there's a very small Tom K. There's a very small chance he could be in his late, you know, high high nineties and still be alive. I mean, it's, even if he was only forty years old at the right. time of the skyjacking, that right. makes him ninety-one today. And people who smoked in their forties and did dangerous things, not a lot of those dudes saw ninety. Yeah, yeah. I think you can sort of extrapolate certain things and, and try to. I mean, you know, again, I I I I throw everything on the table. Is he alive? Maybe, sure, possibly. It's possible, but the idea the idea is probably a lot slimmer. Uh, that he's alive, but I think if he if he did keep to himself, he likely there was no one to tell. So if there's no one to tell, then it it adds to the idea of you getting away with it and never being discovered. And I think that was that was probably pretty important to him, uh, not just from from a practical standpoint, but from from the idea of like oh, I I, I don't maybe I want to take this to my grave. Maybe I, I want no one else to ever know that it was me, uh, you know. And and that certainly seems like it would fit within his wheelhouse. From the little we know, of course. Yeah, he definitely kept it quiet. Uh, talking to Larry Carr, he's like, you know, if you have a bank robbery and they escape with the money, it's very hard to figure out who that was. Yeah. A as a, a police officer or an FBI agent, he said most of the time how those get solved once they get away, it's they run their mouth. Mm -hmm. They told somebody else, hey, I pulled this off. You won't believe I did this. And then that yep. person tells and he's like, uh, you know, if they end up getting away with the money, most of the time how those are solved is yeah. word of mouth, it gets around, and that's how the case gets solved. Yep. So the fact that there isn't a legit lead for this in, in 51 years does sort of lend, uh, well, if there was an accomplice, then they both yeah. kept their mouth shut. But yeah. Cooper most likely kept his mouth shut unless one of the 900 confessions is... <sighs> 
is him. Is accurate. <laughs> right, is him. And what's really interesting about that is you could, the real Cooper could be, could legitimately confess, and it, you know, you of all people would know, it probably would get lost in the stream of confessions that are out there. So if, you, if everybody's yelling, I'm D.B. Cooper, and one of them's, there's, you know, a thousand confessions, and one of them's right, I mean, are you going to go through every one of those confessions and, and do the dogged research to determine if that person's Cooper or not? So, I mean, he could have, he could have done it. I mean, he could have done it and confessed a long time ago, and it's just a confession that was just washed over and nobody ever looked at it. And, you know, I love that you say that there's no legit leads because I agree with you. There's no legitimate, you know, the money, the $5,800 and what Tom K has done, that is probably the most legitimate thing that's been done in this entirety of this case. But that doesn't even lead us anywhere. But it doesn't lead us anywhere. It puts us farther into right. the mystery. Right, the vortex, right? And that's that's it. So... You know, when you when you answer a question that only gives you more questions, you know, we're, I'm not unfamiliar with that at all with the Earhart case. It's it's got to be extremely frustrating to investigators, to people that are trying to prove a suspect wrong or right or what or a theory right or whatever it is. That's got to be very you know, these cases are not kind, you know, the, the longer they get you know, far, farther removed from the actual date of the, of the incident, it's difficult. You're looking for, you're looking for Amelia Earhart. You're looking for a 55 foot, you know, plane in an area that's roughly the size of Texas, you know, and it's a plane that could have moved if it went down, you know, Cooper, he hits the ground. They don't start searching till the next day. Right. Correct. If I'm, if I'm correct on that. So they, they have, yeah, a, the first a little bit real of a search gap. is the next day from the air. They fly over the flight path. But then they don't really have boots on the ground where they believe the drop zone is right. for 36 to 40 hours, depending on the account. You know the area. Could you get out of there in 36 hours? 100%. So there you go. 100%. Now, now if this guy, if, if, it's, if it's a Braden or a McCoy or you know whoever you want to say that's got military experience... Again, I'm going to lean on Braden because, you know, Drew was really, really fed me a lot of great intel on Braden and who, you know, what he did, uh, you know, and in the, the McPhee Sogs and everything. These guys could, he could absolutely get out of there in 36 hours, especially if you add in the idea that he had, he had reconned it and done, maybe not been boots on the ground in that area or anything, but he, he, he had familiarized himself enough with the overall situation, what he was going to do, how he was going to escape, how he's going to get out. Would he have an accomplice? You know, we're not sure about that, but yeah, I mean, if you if you're skilled, you know, it's even going to be quicker for you to get out of there, and you and you know where you're going. You know, you're going to hit roughly in this area. Maybe you got a company. Who knows? You could have had a compass on him. Like, there's little things you could have had on him that we didn't. We will never know because it was in his pocket or something, and he never exposed it to anybody on the plane. Yeah, sure, you can get out of there in 36 hours. I mean, that's a long time. It's a long time. I am a wimp, and I have no survival skills or anything. <laughs> But you could drop me randomly in that area and I can be out of there in no time. It's yeah. not, you know, I've talked about this a million times. It's not the wilderness. It's not the middle of nowhere. There are small towns there. There's roads, there's railways, there's creeks and streams and rivers. Yeah. It's easily navigatable and it's not hundreds of miles from civilization. I mean, the yeah. farthest he would have drifted outside the flight path. He might have been 20 miles from mm -hmm. Woodland, Washington, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's a city. It's yeah. decent sized. Yeah. Uh, and only a few miles from Ariel or Amboy or Yakult. So, yeah. Yeah. He could get out of there. There's no question. The amount of time before they were searching the area and they never found anything. Then the weather gets bad. Yeah. 
and then they're not back there till late March, I think, something like that, when they had the the sheriff's department, Cowlitz and Clark County Sheriff's Department. They round up a bunch of volunteers, a bunch of Boy Scouts too, <laughs> marched through the woods, never found anything. But yeah, is the flight path accurate, Chris? Yeah, I have no reason to believe that it's not. I mean, I think that that's yeah, I think it's accurate. Why do you think there's so much debate? On the flight path when it seems like we know where the plane was. Well, I mean, I, I think because we come up with the big fat nothing. And that's probably why. You know, <laughs> so it's like, well, maybe it's, it's not. Answer. It's the same thing with uh, with Earhart. Well, you know, if you look at what, what Snavely did, right, with Project Blue Angel and Earhart. Uh, and and I'll, I'll try to relay, you know, similarities to those cases because I think they're, they're similar in a lot of ways. Bill... They had searched like crazy in in the area near Howland Island for that. I mean, it was in the middle of the in the middle of the Great Depression. They're spending millions of dollars a day, you know, searching for Earhart and all this sort of stuff. When Bill walked this whole thing backwards, he started looking at part of the flight path that hadn't been searched by anybody, and it hadn't been searched because, from a practical standpoint, they didn't need to search it. They didn't think it needed to search it because they knew where she was at. They were getting those S five signals. She must have been around Howland. You've got to concentrate your stuff around Howland. But when you strike out. Now all of a sudden you're looking at East New Britain. Now you're looking at the Marshall Islands. Now you're looking at Nicomoro, 400 miles away, 800 miles away, 1,700 miles away. So I mean, you're starting to get you know more and more draconian, ridiculous you know lengths away. I think it's similar. You know, if if you're not finding anything directly in that in the heart of that flight path or where he the drop zone would have been, you're going to expand right a little by little bit at a time, little by little. And all of a sudden now you've got a totally different flight path, and now they're going in a totally different direction, or they're going veering off in this different area here and they're thinking maybe he jumped in this area but i feel like i think it's just because of what they've what they've not been able to come up with is why that flight path has been sort of argued that well maybe it's not the actual flight path maybe it's something different well said that is a fantastic answer i really like that all right along the same lines is the drop zone accurate the aerial Amboy Yakult area? I think so. I, I, I don't think we have anything to tell us that it's not, that's legitimate. And again, I'm, I'm not versed in this case like you are, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I feel like everybody I spoke with, everything that I know and the limited knowledge that I have, I really feel like the not only the, is the flight path accurate, but the drop zone's accurate. It's probably where he hit. That's probably where he took off. He probably, like I said, he had 36 hours, maybe even a little bit longer to get ahead of everybody before the news hit that everybody knew that this this plane was skyjacked and all this stuff happened. When did the, I'll ask you, when did the news hit? How soon did it become public that Cooper, was it when they when they got the flight down on the ground finally, or was it they had a press conference right after that? Like, how quick did the news hit? I believe the news broke that night. Okay. So he had this skyjacking. So he had, and he jumped somewhere around, but between eight ten and eight thirteen is when they felt the pressure bump at PM, right? So yeah, and the plane lands in Reno close to eleven, I think. So he's got a few hours ahead of time where it's total total radio silence as far as he knows. It hasn't gotten out. Again, I feel like he probably would have taken that into consideration. He probably would have realized like, well. Um, you know, it's going to take three or four hours or even maybe 12 hours to get the news out for this to become wide. I can get out of there by then. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's possible that, you know, that's what happened. Do you think Cooper knew where he was jumping and, or wanted to jump there? I think he knew, he think he more or less knew where he had to, to jump. I think he knew where he wanted to jump because if we're going to tie it back to, the Elsinore ghost and, and all that they were, he was actively, whoever this was there in Elsinore was actively researching drop zones in the Pacific Northwest. So like he knew he was going to jump somewhere in that area, 
but we, you know, I don't know if he had it anally down to like, oh, it's going to be this one spot exactly or whatever. But I think he knew for the most part where he was going to jump. I don't think, I know he wanted to go somewhere else and they couldn't go. They couldn't get like, I think he wanted to go to Mexico, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, want to go to Mexico City plan. and then they agreed to refuel in Reno. Right. And that's an obvious, I mean, that, that that's an obvious, you know, reason. I mean, he wants to get out of the country, which makes, you know, he wants to, makes it harder for them to extradite and bring him back into the country. And Mexico is the quickest way to get there. Uh, but what's interesting is the whole idea of him. Uh, how far? How far is the Canadian border from where their flight path was at? Could he have gone from to Seattle? Probably a hundred miles north. So what? Because I know there's been a lot of talk about him potentially being Canadian, and the whole idea that the Dan Cooper was a Canadian, was a French Canadian comic book hero or comic book stunt pilot or something that did all this stuff. I didn't get too much into that, but it's interesting that he didn't select to go to Canada instead of going to Mexico. I understand why he would have picked Mexico over Canada, but it technically is farther. So I feel like, you know, if you're trying to get out of there quickly, once you got that cash, your idea, you're, you know, now the whole plan changes. You've got to get off that plane as fast as humanly possible uh, and get on the ground so you can scatter and get away with the money. Uh, but I feel like uh, he, he more or less, you know, dialed in on Pacific Northwest. He might've had a couple of like a plan A, plan B type deal. I think someone of that intelligence level i mean if you look at the rest of the flight and what he carried out it's all right there he might have had a plan b and the plan b would have probably been you know pnw somewhere why do you think he wanted to jump in that area maybe because he'd researched it because he'd reconned it a little bit beforehand maybe he knew okay if i hit this area i can get like you were talking about earlier i can get there's i'm not too far away from any towns if he had an accomplice we're going to go that route uh it might have been easier for an accomplice to get to a road or him to meet an accomplice at a road he could have had a map folded up in his pocket with a compass he could have had a couple different ways to get out of that area really quickly where he knew where he once soon as he hit the ground got his bearings he knew where he where north was he knew where he'd be going you knew where he, that person would be meeting him if that's the case, or he just knew, okay, if I take this path, you know, if I hit path A, path B, or whatever, I can get out of here pretty quickly. Um, so I think he just probably picked it because he was maybe familiar with it, and that's what he decided he wanted to do. There's that highest in store break in the night of the skyjacking where yeah. gloves, beef jerky, and cigarettes are taken from the store. Do you think that's Cooper? I go back and forth on that, to be honest with you. Nikki makes an awfully strong case for that. I mean, I, I really love the research he did and the way he built that and the way he researched it. I mean, I, I think it's possible that it could have been Cooper. I, the, the, the boot print, there were boot prints found at that location. Right? I think that's all that they found at that location. Right, so, like a muddy boot print climbed through the window. But it wasn't the same kind of boot, right? Or was it, was it the Cochrane? Do we know if it was like a Cochrane boot? Or do we not know from the print if it was a Cochrane boot or not? If I remember correctly, I think it was military style was all they said. I've never seen a picture of the treadmark, but I think it was just like, you know, the owner walked into the bathroom, the window was yeah. pried open, and yeah. there's a muddy boot print on the floor. You know, it's possible. I really I really do go back and forth on that. I think due to Nikki's research on that, I think it's possible he could have hit that store, gotten a couple of supplies. Maybe I mean, he, we know he was a smoker. We know he was smoking a lot. Maybe he lost his cigarettes on the jump. Maybe he wanted some smokes while he was getting out of town and getting out of the way. Um, jerky's a good thing to get if you're just needing to eat something that's going to keep you, you know, keep some food in you from for a, a jaunt if you're taking off and you're going to be on your own for a while. Um, the gloves, I'm not sure why the gloves would have been there or why he would have needed the gloves, but maybe just to keep his hands cold, you know, if it might've gotten pretty cold. If you step out here, we're in Missouri right now, but if you step out here, your hands and your ears get freezing pretty quick when it's cold. So maybe, Hey, get some gloves on. Yeah. And it would have been wet warm. that night. So. Would have been wet. So, you know, you, you can start making like logistical reasoning, you know, for why he would have done the things he did. But I, you know, I think I, I lean towards that being, um, it, it possibly being him, but I just, I don't know for sure. Tim Collins showed me uh, 
like a crime blotter in the newspaper yeah. from around the same time. And there was a, a break in where like a boat was taken on the Lewis river and then uh, like an unattended cabin was broken into and some food was stolen from yeah. it yeah. around the, I think it might've been the same night or the night after. And it's just like, are we just looking for every crime in the area and assuming mm-hmm. <laughs> it was Cooper that night? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I asked you that same question. Uh, on on the on the show are we are we over analyzing are we reaching here uh and i think there's probably a lot of reaching in this case oh yeah Uh, there's a lot of reaching in all historical mystery cases but again these real marquee cases you know like Earhart, like cooper jack the ripper there's certainly no no shortage of that there too with suspects you're gonna have confirmation bias run rampant through these cases you're gonna go looking for things that fit your theory that fit the idea or fit the idea that he would, you know, the Cooper made this jump and yeah, he broke into the store here. Or he hit this spot here or whatever he was cited. You know, it's the same thing with, you know, all the, all the, uh, the judge crater stuff we did. We didn't really get into that, but he was cited supposedly out West and then he was cited in Australia and all this other stuff. And you know, you no shortage. Oh yeah. I saw DB Cooper. I saw a guy that looked just like him. And then all these suspects, it just blows up and you get all these suspects everywhere. And suddenly now you got a thousand DB Coopers everywhere. I think the guy probably knew that was going to happen. I think he had, maybe I'm giving him way too much intelligence, you know, credit here, but I feel like this is a guy that probably would probably plan this thing out, you know, pretty aggressively and probably knew, hey, if I do this just right, they're not going to be able to know who it was because I'm, I'm, I do look like everybody. I can make myself just look like everybody else. You know, I can be a chameleon. You know, I can blend in uh, so that way when they go to it's like, oh, shit, that's, you know, we're, we're skyjacked and all this happened. Well, what did the guy look like? Well, he looked like this. He looked like that. You're getting all these varying, de- you know, degrees of of different sketches and different opinions on what he looked like. And, you know, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. People filling in the gaps when you don't know something, you're going to start filling in the gaps. It's human nature. So I think he probably knew all that. I think he was pretty smart. There are some people in the book that would disagree with that, probably that would say that. He was just smart enough to be dangerous or he was just smart enough to get this job done. But I think he was you're dealing with a, a guy who had a probably a pretty supreme intellect that knew what he was doing. And he had the experience on top of that. So when you have both of those together, it's like, you, you know, you know, you're the smartest guy in the room. You know, you know that this is, you know, all these people are beneath you, so to speak, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, and you could just run circles around them. Yeah, that definitely seemed like how Cooper carried himself. Yeah. Uh, and it, that ties into kind of. You know, when we get to Braden, uh, it ties into kind of the Braden and stuff in Fort Dix and stuff with Hank Birch and just the way this guy just seemed to have complete. Con- this is a guy that was locked up in a cell and he just it's like he, it's like he knew he was just com- had complete control over the situation, locked up in a cell. It's all going to work out, man. Don't worry about it. Shit. That kind of confidence <laughs> is, you know, it's bone chilling in a way. So, yeah. Speaking of not knowing the answer to things, how'd the money get to Tina Barr? I have no idea. I've never been. I, I, I tend to believe what Tom K says. I, he's the authority. Uh, I think it, it got there. I think the money was, you know, that's what he says is exactly what happened. I mean, I feel like the money was wet before it got buried, as he says. I think it ended up on Tina Bar. I don't know. My question is, why is it only 5,800 bucks? That's my question. You know, that's an odd number. 5,800 bucks is like, okay, well, because do we know how they presented him the money? Do, you, do we know how they gave him the money? I know they gave it to him in a satchel, but was it like, you know, in $10,000 increments? Was it in, how it did it? It should have been in $2,000 increments. Okay. 
100 bills in a packet with a bake band around it. Non-sequential dollars or not non-sequential $20 bills? Correct. But they did have all the serial numbers. Okay. And then those packets were banded together with rubber bands in bundles of usually three to five packets. And I know these terms, bundles and packets, because it's been <laughs> driven home, especially like by Flyjack on the drop zone and everything. Yeah. Uh, people get annoyed when you say, oh, you found this packet of money. No, it's a bundle yeah. of packets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's no bake bands when they find them. We don't right. know, was there a series of rubber bands around each mm-hmm. group, or was it one rubber band around yeah. the whole stack? Yeah, I, I'm not really sure on that. I'm not sure if anyone knows the answer to that specifically. But that's going to be tough. I don't. I don't think he. I. I. I really don't think he landed in the water, or he landed near water and walked up the beach, buried the money. It's fifty, hundred bucks, and then just bounced. I don't think that's what happened. I think it. You know, the, maybe some of the money fell out. I mean, you know, again, this is all speculation. I mean, Tom K is the authority, right? So, I mean, you know, he's going to, I'm going to buy whatever he's selling when it comes to that. Right. And he has no idea how the money got to Tina Bar. <laughs> right. It's like if Tom K doesn't know, who, you know, who the hell am I to say, oh, this is how it got to Tina Bar. I don't, I don't know. I just know that I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, what Tom says is probably what happened. You know, I don't, I certainly don't think he walked up, buried the money and took off. I don't, I just don't think that happened. It'd be unusual to just bury a portion of the money. It would be the only the only thing I could think of, or the only reason I could think of for that, is that it would have been intentional that he did it to throw off a scent or throw off a direction, maybe or whatever the case is. Again, this is all speculation, obviously on my part, and I'm sure other people have had this thought before I have, but that's the only logical thing in my brain that makes me think well. Maybe he could have buried the money or maybe he did that intent. Maybe he had a hand in that. But when you look at what Tom discovered and what they did with that scientifically, it's like, well, that's probably not. It's probably bullshit. I mean, how Tom says it got there is how it got there, I'm sure. Do you think he spent the rest of the money? What do you think happened to the rest of the money? God, that's such a fun question. I So I think was it I think it was Dave. Shout out to Dave Futterman, I think. I hope it's Dave. If I remember my edits right. Dave mentioned the possibility of him donating the money, which is, can I cuss on the show? Is that yeah, okay? sure. Which is fucking awesome. Can you imagine if you did this, you talked about Barb, right? We talked about Barb Dayton a little bit. And again, I don't know much about Barb as far as, I mean, I love the story. I, I love all what I know, but the idea that Barb didn't do it for the money, Barb did it because she wanted to prove something to herself. You know, it was a more mm-hmm. intimate thing. It wasn't about the money, never was about the money, right? Can you imagine if this guy, whoever he was, and, and this this goes against this is about to go against Braden, by the way. Uh, so for people who think I'm just pure pro Braden, um, it, it doesn't fit Braden's mo. I think Braden would have absolutely kept the money and spent it somehow, or or, or got got it cleaned, or cycled it through, or done something like that. But can you imagine if this guy jumps out and makes this successful skyjacking, and he fucking donates the money? And that's how it ensures that the money, because they're not going to check the, you know, the banks aren't checking every suspect 20, like Tom K says, they're not going to, they it just, it gets, it's labor intensive to do that. Uh, You know, so can you imagine if he just decided to donate the rest of that money? And then it's like that you'll never find, you'll never, you'll never, you know how they say never say never, I'm saying never, like you'll never find that money if it was donated, it's gone. And I thought that was amazing. And I don't, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I thought, wouldn't that be cool? if he just donated the money and he just, maybe he didn't donate all of it. Maybe he kept a little bit of it. We don't know. Uh, but maybe he stashes the 5,800 bucks to throw off the scent, keeps 20 grand for himself and donates the rest of it somewhere. 
the origin of the Vancouver Boys and Girls Club was a donation from D.B. Cooper. Can you <laughs> that, imagine that? That would be I mean, can you imagine great. that? Uh, there was a, you know, yeah, I mean, I just feel like that that would fit in with, you know, again, this Robin Hood personality and all the stuff that's, I mean, it's it's made up. Like the Boogeyman, Three Little Pigs, shit like that. Like, it's not real. We don't know if he was a Robin Hood-esque type guy. We can only base it off of, you know, historically speaking, what, te- you know, Tina's testimony, Flo's testimony, the flight crew, people who were on the plane, Bill Mitchell, all those all those folks. You know, we can we can guesstimate, you know, what his demeanor was. We know he was calm. You know, all that stuff happened. None of that tells you that he was a Robin Hood, stick it to the man, you know, Robin from the rich, taken, given to the poor type of guy. Right. That's been made up. You know, it's been got, just like the whole DB moniker was made up. You know, it's it's like he didn't, I'm sure he didn't, he never, in a million years, the Dan Cooper thing, you talk about it in the book and you make such an excellent point. It's absolutely not a fluke that he chose that name. You, I think you go back to Fight Club and Tyler Durden and all that stuff. It's very true. If there's something that means something to you, that's maybe an inside joke, you know, you're going to be the guy that, you know, you're going to be the guy to do it. You're going to, that's, you're going to have a little fun with that. But the whole idea that, I mean, I can just, I can just think about him donating that money and just think like that would be so cool if that happened. But you're a fan of him choosing that name from the comic book. I think so. I mean, I think so. Cause when you look at the comic and you do a little bit of research, it's like, well, that's kind of, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Like this is, maybe he was a big fan, a Dan Cooper, you know, comic fan. Uh, in a lot of the same ways you, you tie the, the Fight Club stuff together with, you know, modern audiences and stuff. It's, yeah, you would pick something that means something to you. Obviously, he didn't know it was going to be, you know, morphed into D.B. Cooper. But, you know, the whole Dan Cooper thing, I think, is absolutely intentional. Yeah, I'm, I'm sold on that after that conversation with you, for sure. Have you seen that, uh, I believe it was Ryan Burns that found it. He found like a 1930s Air Trails, I don't want to call it a magazine. It's more like a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. But in there, there's a story. Uh, about this guy Dan Cooper and involves aircraft and the next one's like about skydiving and the the way the story's written it's always like Dan Cooper sat down Dan Cooper punched this guy in the face (laughs) Dan Cooper drank his bourbon yeah yeah so it's just interesting to see another reference of Dan Cooper outside of that comic book but yeah I'm with you I've I'm not sure if I'm I believe a hundred percent. That's why I chose the name. Yeah. But I want to believe a hundred percent. That's why I chose yeah. the name. Me too. It's, 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 it's tough to say that that would be a coincidence. Uh, you know, and again, this shows my ignorance to the case when I asked you about that. I mean, I truly didn't know. I was like, so you think it was just a random pick? And you're like, no, hell no, that's not a random pick. Let me tell you, you know, why it's not. And you get, you really laid it out. And I think that when you, when you hear stuff like that, it's, yeah, it becomes really evident. I mean, it was personal for him. It was a personal little thing uh, that just kind of made him smile internally, you know. I'm sure he, I'm sure he saw the coverage. I'm sure he saw all that stuff. And you know, they're talking about Dan Cooper, and then of course DB Cooper. And he probably was like, "What the hell is that going?" You know, what's but you know, whatever. Close enough, right? Yeah, they ruined my joke. Yeah, I ruined my joke. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I feel like um, you know they did say Dan Cooper a couple of times in the coverage and stuff. So I mean, I think he probably got a big kick out of that. What do you think of the particles left behind on the tie? I think that is where. A, a potential, I think that's where science can take over where history has failed, potentially. You know, I think that's, to Mark Zaid's credit, you know, he talked about, a lot about that in, in the book and in the show originally. Um, that's why he steps into these cases. He wants science to take over where history couldn't quite, you know, put bring it home, basically. Uh, I think the particles in the tie, you know, are are legitimate, are, are legitimate uh, piece of evidence to, you know, to, to track down. And to, if you're going to doggedly research something, if you're going to take it, you know, as, as 
small as you can or down to the the, the, mo the smallest detail, I think that's where you go. You go with those tie particles, and I think that's what they're doing. I mean, it, I think it's a natural progression from having the tie. It blows my mind that we've even got the tie. That really blows my mind because I feel like, I mean, again, I've been talking up this guy's genius and his intelligence level the whole time and everything, and he leaves the tie behind, you know, whether it falls off of him or he just throws it or gets rid of it when he puts on the straps on the chute or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that we've got that tie and we had those cigarette butts, uh, I don't know, you know, Eric Eulis definitively says they were destroyed and he knows that they were. So, I mean, I, again, that's Eric Eulis. I'm going to I'm going to buy that if he believes that they were destroyed. I, you know, who am I to question that? But if the fact that we've got the tie in general and that they're doing what they're doing now on it is pretty great, you know, it's it's opening up new suspects and new leads. That's what these all are. All, this is what this is all about. Do you think that can lead to the conclusion of the case? Uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how good the lead is that you get from those particles, right? Like if you narrow it, if you can narrow it down, I love what Tom K says in the book. He talks about, you know, uh, really the, the tie particles and kind of examining it. And that really puts makes Cooper's really shrinks Cooper's world a lot. I think if you can do that, I think it can certainly help do that. You might be able to narrow this down to where like it may be only a couple hundred dudes or something. And that's a hell of a lot better than we've got now. So will it be like Yahtzee? And it's like, okay, we got the guy. This is the guy. It narrows down to this dude. I don't know. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know that. I would say that um, it could certainly help it narrow it down to an extreme amount of small, small amount of suspects, you know, potentially. So you chase those leads, man. You follow that evidence wherever it leads, you know, no matter how minuscule it is. And, you know, if you can knock on a door, you know, and you can get to closer to something, then that's, that's, that's what we can do here. And that's, I think that's what's going to happen with it. I don't, I don't know if it's going to conclusively solve it, but it's going to be a, an important step in solving it, I think. Do you think he left the tie on the plane by mistake or was it intentional? That's a total crapshoot. I, I, I lean towards him being, being a mistake. Uh, that, that he slipped up, which was, you know, I think, again, I mean, I'm talking up this guy's genius, right? I mean, I think it was a rare slip. I don't think he left it on purpose. A lot of people say it's possible that he left the ties a fuck you to the rest of the, you know, to whoever's going to be investigating the authorities and all that stuff. I don't know about that. I really think this guy probably wouldn't have done you know, that's kind of why when we get to the, when we get to the Cooper letters in a bit, I'm sure we'll talk about that. That's why I kind of, I kind of, eh, on the Cooper letters, like, yeah, they're, it, especially letter number six, you know, and it kind of ties into Braden and it ties into kind of some of the ways he talked. But I, Cooper doesn't strike me as a guy that would go back to that well and start teasing police and teasing authorities and everything. I feel like he would, it's a job. You get that, you plan that job, you execute that job, you leave that job and you're done. You don't tell anybody about it. And that's that. I don't feel like he would have waited around and, and told a bunch of, you know, tease the police or tease authorities. And I really feel like he wouldn't have intentionally left the tie back there. I think it was probably a mistake. I agree with you. And I agree with you on the letters, too. I mean, he asked for his notes back. Mm -hmm. If he's going to ask for his notes back, is he then going to successfully pull off this hijacking and then think, I'm going to write the Oregonian a letter? Right, right. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't fit the M.O. Of, of the rest of the plan. It doesn't fit the M.O. of the rest of the plan. And so for me, for him to deviate from that M.O., something's got to cause that. Now, it could be a mental thing. It could be a, like you talked about. It, people brag about this shit. I mean, it's really, that's how these cases get solved. Talk about Larry talking about bank robberies getting solved that way. You know, Cooper wasn't, 
you know, necessarily immune to that kind of stuff, but I feel like he would have known more than the average person to just keep quiet and, you know, keep this to myself and I will actually get away with this. So I feel like, uh, you know, leaving the tie behind, he probably obviously regretted that was probably pissed when he realized he left it behind because now you've got evidence. Now you've got something, maybe in 1971, you don't have a whole lot, but I would imagine that, you know, as DNA and scientific advancements happen, I mean, you're going to find breakthroughs. You're going to find people that are going to tie that tie, the particles in that tie or whatever, back to suspects, much like they're doing right now as we speak. So maybe he was right about being pissed about leaving that tie. If that's how he felt about it. All right, Chris, give me a percentage here. What do you think the percentage is? It was likely his tie hmm. or that he bought it secondhand. Or it was his buddy's tie he stole or something like that. But not, wasn't the tie that he wore every day? That's a tough question because, because we, don't, we don't know. I mean, we just don't know. I, I, I guess you could say 50-50. I, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? I mean, did he, did he buy it secondhand, um, you know, at a secondhand store? Sure. I mean, that's, that's possible. Uh, you know, if he was putting a disguise together, you know, he threw the shades on, threw the suit on. Maybe he needed a tie. He buys it at a secondhand store. Done deal. He's got a tie. Was that his personal tie that he wore if he was a factory worker or worked around metal and everything, all this stuff? You know, you know, sure, 50%, maybe. I mean, I'd say 50-50. It's really tough until you get, you know, I, I, you might not be able to answer that question until you have a definitive suspect. That's a good point. You know, you might, that's one, that's one of those, that's one of those questions you'll get answers to once you get the big answer. Okay, who was he? So who was he? What became of the money? Those are the two questions. We don't know. We don't need to know about, we know how he pulled it off. We know about all that stuff, but you're going to have about a half a dozen questions you're going to be able to answer by asked, by answering those two major questions. Who was this guy and where did the money go? Once you figure that out, then you'll know who, where he worked, what he did. Okay, that's probably likely was his tie that he had every day because he wore it around every day or whatever. Then you can start researching the genealogy of this person, who he was, maybe reach out to extended family. That'll unlock some doors. You'll start to get little little questions that you'll be able to pick off. But right now, I'd say it's a crapshoot. I'd say it's 50-50 either way. Yeah, I guess that's the right answer. because There's no other way to say it. Well, it's 90% it was his tie. I mean, it's hard. How, how, how do you know? How would you know? You know, so it's one of those things where you're 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 taking speculation and you're just kind of going either way you want to go with it. If you believe it wasn't his tie and it was secondhand, then you could probably find answers or reasons to believe that. You know, again, confirmation bias runs rampant through all these things. So you will find reasons to support your claims uh, if you look hard enough. Uh, but I feel like the only logistical answer to that is it's a crapshoot. Yeah, I think that's the right answer. Like I said, until we find out more information. Yeah. Tom K has said before that he believes Cooper was a guy who regularly wore a suit because mm. if you're going to do this daring heist, you're going to want to wear something that you're comfortable wearing. If you are an airplane mechanic used to wearing coveralls every day, mm -hmm. you might feel out of place wearing a suit. Mm -hmm. To poo-poo that theory, <laughs> most people on that plane, most dudes on that plane were likely wearing some version of a suit and tie. Sure. Sure. Uh, you look at photos from that time period, people dressed up, people dressed nicely. Yep. So it would have been wildly out of place to wear your coveralls or to, like today, wear pajama pants and yeah. slippers yeah. and a ratty tank top onto the plane. Hey, I've seen some of that on these uh, overnight red eyes. People will come in their pajamas and oh, stuff. Oh, 100%. You know? Why not, right? You're going to be on a plane. pajamas on every single yeah. flight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think the idea that he, I think him wearing a suit or dressing business like, 
I think added to the the blend. I think it added to the job. You need if you're him and you're attempting to do this, you need to call call as little attention to yourself as humanly possible. And I think dressing a certain way, dressing like the rest of the flight, you know, the passenger list for the most part, like I said, people, like you said, people traveled, you know, they dressed up when they traveled and things of that nature. A lot of dudes wore suits at that point. I think him wearing a suit uh, is probably part of the plan. Now, whether he, whether he wore it every day, you know, I guess, again, that's another speculative crapshoot because, I mean, once you find out who he was, maybe this guy was you know, did work in a factory and did, was a supervisor and, and, you know, maybe did wear a shirt, maybe a shirt and tie at least every day or something like that. And you just had the sport coat, threw it on, and that was the end of the ensemble. Uh, you throw the glasses on, there you go. You got your, got your D.B. Cooper outfit, basically. So it's possible, but again, I, th- I think it's one of those, those questions you're going to have to answer once you identify who it was. Do you think there could be an element of CIA or FBI cover-up or steering the investigation towards a dead end? I'm going to say yes, because I believe it was Braden and because I believe because I know I know Braden knew knew Singlob very well. And I knew that I know that Braden had specific connections uh, that were higher that were high up. Uh, You couldn't get much higher than that guy when it came to his military ability and his experience and the people he knew and the connections that he made along the way. So I feel like it's an absolute possibility that whoever this was, uh, was above the FBI. And that's and whoever whoever it was, whether it was a CIA or another another government institution or whatever it was at the time, may have been able to assist in keeping it quiet or keeping some interested parties off his scent. Friends in high places. Friends in high places, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know that that happens uh, even now with some of the you know uh, s- some really bad people that are out there. You know, if they're being utilized for uh, government operations or for things of that nature, that that government will actually help keep other interested parties off their tail. You know, to kind of make them make it more exclusive to them. So I feel like if he was uh, now, I, that's not to say he was doing this for the CIA or as a or as a CIA job or anything like that, because he not, again, nothing really tells us uh, anything to support that. But I feel like if if you know, he was doing the, the homework he was doing and, and doing what I've been saying he was doing, then he probably would have made those connections. You know, going out to talk to Lyle Cameron Sr. potentially. I mean, I know Lyle Cameron, Cameron didn't say he knew the guy or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, if, if he had been sort of aimed at Lyle, hey, go talk to this guy. This is who you want to talk to if you need to know about these questions. You know, he could have been helped along the way. And it's possible that even after the fact, after the skyjacking, they could have stepped in and assisted either help him get away. I mean, that just gets speculative. And I try to stay away from that as much as I can. It's fun to speculate and to talk, but we don't really have, we don't have any concrete data to support that. That's just me bullshitting basically. Why is Ted Braden your suspect? So I'll tell you what happened and I'll be very honest. Uh, Robert Rackstraw was actually my suspect. So people who don't know uh, the story of sort of how this all came about. uh, And that really, I credit you uh, for that steering me away from Rackstraw. Not that Rackstraw is not amazing in his own right and doesn't have a hell of a career and have have a hell of a story. But um, I started looking, I I took it back to formula after you said, hey, maybe you should look at this again and see if there's anybody else. And I remember talking to you about it. I said, who would you, if you were coming into this fresh and you didn't have the experience you had, who stands out to you? And I remember you talking about Braden. Um, And it doesn't, that's not an endorsement of Braden, but you just thought it was, he was compelling. He was interesting. And 
uh, I remember you telling me, have a conversation off the record with Drew, and then you'll see sort of, you know, why I kind of feel compelled that, that Braden is a, is a good dark horse. And I, I love a good dark horse suspect. That's a big deal for me. I'm not interested so much, again, to shows my ignorance because I didn't think he'd had so much spotlight shown on him. But I'm, I'm generally not interested in, in suspects who have a lot of spotlight shown on them because they've been done to death. You know, they, you know that they're not that person or that you know all the reasons why people say that they are that person, whatever the case is. So Braden, I started looking at his career. Again, I removed Thanksgiving Eve from his resume and I just looked at the guy's career. You know, he lies about his age. He gets into the tail end of World War II. He fights at the Battle of the Bulge. He sees action in Vietnam. He's a mercenary. He joins the MACV SOGs. They do some crazy ass shit over there in an area that just was not a safe area. And this is a guy who had, like, when you look at his jump records, right, and you look at all this stuff and how many jumps and, and hate, this guy loved to pull the, pull the ripcord under 1,000 feet. He was intimate in the air, intimately comfortable with parachutes and with military parachutes in particular, which is what Cooper chose ultimately. And uh, I feel like the connections that he had made while he was in the MACV SOG and the people that supported him, like Drew talks about, you know, Billy Waugh and John Plaster and, and all, not just those two guys, but like all of the people that were around Braden at the time that were under him, beside him, above him, everybody that talks about the Cooper heist there's never a number two. There's never like, oh, it's Braden or it's Johnson or whatever. It's fucking, it's Braden. That's it. It's gotta be Braden. This is the guy that had balls of steel. This is the guy that had, you know, maybe a thousand jumps, 600, 800 halos. I mean, the guy pioneered it. You know, the guy would do free falls and all this crazy shit and jump out of the back of these aircraft. And he was like, he had like this death wish. And like, you start looking at all this stuff. And then you start looking at sort of like, you know, could this guy keep his calm, keep his cool? There is evidence, there's rumor, not rumor, but there's evidence to support that he was a hothead. He put a gun to the head of a couple of his people at different times. I mean, we're going to do it my way, but he did it in a, in a way that's like, hey, it's my way. We're not, we're not, I'm not yelling at you. I'm not getting crazy. This, this, we're doing it my way. And I felt like looking at all this stuff and looking at Braden's record and looking at what he could do in the air, it just felt, and then looking at the Fort Dick stuff, it just felt like this guy's demeanor and MO and everything just matched, I mean, beautifully. And the skills are off the charts. There's, I interviewed Hank Birch for the book, and it was a beautiful interview, and Hank was amazing, and he recalled all this great detail about him. It's limited interaction with Braden when he was in, in the hold at Fort Dix. And he talked about just, you know, the guy, like the blood pressure in this guy would have been like flawless if he would have taken it. Like he was just like perfect. He had the, he had the Cochrane boots. He had the spit shine, you know, all the belt buckle and he had all the stuff. He was able to smoke. He had a TV and the, you know, all the stuff that you normally wouldn't have in those situations, this guy had, which told Hank, which told Drew, which told me that this guy had connections. He knew people and, and he had the ability to just stay completely calm in an, in an uncontrollable situation as far as the outside eye would be concerned. So I looked at all of that and I thought, this guy makes a compelling suspect. Uh, you know, you look at McCoy, Rackstraw, all these people, there's, you know, he's not the only, you know, jumper in the group, obviously, but all of these guys, and they, all these guys had great careers. And then you look at Braden's and it's like 10 rungs above everybody else's. And you're like, well, this is a guy that could have easily, it could not only would have been probable, but it would have been easy for him to do this jump. 
And does that tie into Cooper's demeanor and how he acted that night? Absolutely. 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 A thousand percent. So does that mean he was Brayden? No. But what it does mean is that Brayden was an absolute badass and Brayden knew exactly how to keep calm under pressure. He knew how to get shit done. These guys jumped into Laos and were like, you know, they did Drew ever tell you about how they would kill each other from the air? Like if they realized that they were going to get caught, they would your own people would shoot you from the fucking air. Like that's. That's amazing to be in those it's a rough positions. Way to go. Yeah, to be in. So think about all those positions. Think about all those instances, in those scenarios. This would have been a walk in the park for a guy like Brayden. Walk in the park with no problem. So that's what maybe that's what sold me. All that together, and Drew's conviction, and 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 Hank's conviction. Conviction. Shit. I mean, you know, all these people that and all these people that are like fellow Mac V Sogs that were saying like I'd bet my Medal of Honor on this and, my, and everything I own that Brayden was Cooper. Like. These guys don't say things like that unless they know for sure if they really feel in their soul that this guy was Cooper. So you add all that up together and it makes for a very compelling argument that Braden and Cooper for one night were one and the same. There is no doubt that Braden could have pulled this off and he had the ability to plan it and execute it, not just one or the other. Right. And I tend to lean away from FBI or CIA covered it up. But when you hear that story at Fort Dix, where Hank walks by his cell, yeah. and he's like, I peeked in there, and he was watching TV in a full uniform with a shined belt buckle, smoking a wood-tipped Cuban cigar. And the Cochran and, boots. Yeah, and he's like, you know what? None of those things were allowed. Right. And then you hear he's released because they couldn't find enough staff to right. fill the courtroom. Right. And he's like... That's not an excuse. You, you, I've never heard that before. I never heard that after. Yeah. The idea that we didn't have staff is foolish. I mean, yeah. of course we had staff. He was let go. Yeah. He was let go. That's exactly what it was. And you can read into that all you want. Was he let go because he had some kind of really crazy tie? We know he was And he was close. up for what? Treason and desertion? Right. Right. Well, they were going to try to prosecute him for AWOL. And he's like, well, you can't do, you know, you can't do AWOL. This is, this is a desertion case. And you look at all that, you think, well, this is a guy who, you know, I mean, he knew Singlob. They were very close. They were friends. They used to, they used to, they used to hang out in the, in the jump clubs and drink together. And it's like, you know, here's Hank talking about, here's this, you know, this one of the future founders of the CIA hanging out with this and these nobodies that are just his buddies that are, you know, they're drinking and having a good time. And they would, they would tell stories to each other. And, you know, Singlob respected, probably highly respected Braden's ability. Uh, good soldiers, obviously, were hard to find. So this is a guy who, you know, he was just, he lied about his age. He had no problem taking somebody else's identity and using it. You know, that was really interesting too. He took the name of a Canadian, I forget the guy's name, but he took the name of a Canadian, a fellow soldier who was a Canadian, which is interesting because it ties it, you know, the whole, you know, D.B. Cooper was Canadian maybe or whatever. It's like, well, maybe he wasn't Canadian, but maybe he took the idea from, you know, that. Do you remember the name off the top of your head? I don't. It's in the book. We'll have to, okay. we'll have to look. I'll put it. Well, I'll let you know, but I know I, uh, Drew knows it. I forget off the top of my head. The yeah, I believe I've heard it before too. But yeah, and he just happened to be Canadian, which is interesting. You know, I, you're grabbing at straws maybe, but it's like pretty cool little things here and there. So that's all that compelling information together made me just think like, well, you know, this is a guy who you need to shine a, a bright spotlight on him and you have to deal with all of this that we've sort of put forward now. It's like, okay, this is sort of the hypothesis as we've, 
hypothesized it to be drew i will say on the record fully this is drew's research this is drew's thing this is i'm just merely sort sort of trying to help him uh this is sort of serves as a the back end of this book serves sort of as a quasi sequel to paratrooper of fortune to, to drew's book uh, you know, and uh, that's to Drew's credit and to Hank's credit and to, you know, to some things that Nikki said. What's really interesting about this book when you read through it, before we ever mention Ted B. Braden's name in it, there are a lot of cool little things that kind of attach, you know, attach themselves or lend themselves to Braden being Cooper without it. We don't even have to mention his name. And that's kind of neat. And I think when you get those kind of scenarios, uh, it, it makes the case stronger for that particular suspect. So, you know, Dr. Bob Edwards saying that, oh, yeah, this is a military. This is a backpack with which a military man would have been familiar. You start like adding all these little things. You know, Nikki saying at the end of the right before we go into trial by jury, Nikki said, I asked him, I was like, so, you know, you, you got this time frame. Is this is this enough time for Cooper to turn around and maybe put on his shoe? You know, we're theorizing that he put his shoes on or whatever at that time, strap that you know, throw on that parachute and be gone. He's like, oh yeah, that's too much time for Braden. That's way too much. Like it's, it's, it would have been easy. So you start looking at all these people that don't necessarily believe that Braden was Cooper, but they're telling you like, oh yeah, that would have been easy. It'd been flawless for him. No problem. You know, that's how good he was. And it just all starts to add up. You look at that Elsinore ghost, you know, you look at Lyle Cameron senior, someone of that stature saying, yeah, I noticed this guy had Cochran boots on. And those Cochrane boots were kind of rare. You know, they weren't as common as you might think. And Cochrane boots were, you know, Braden was a real big fan of those Spitshine Cochrane boots. We had them in Fort Dix. He had them in the military, had them in McVie Sog. He had them in Elsinore. And he probably had them on Flight 305, most likely. Braden has been a suspect for a really long time. Yeah. But it's, he never really came to the forefront uh, for me or, or for a lot of other people. I know uh, Bruce Smith looked into him quite a bit, but mm. once Drew attached himself, Drew Beeson attaches himself to to Ted Braden, and that book Paratrooper of Fortune is just so great. Yeah. The things that he was able to uncover. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things about Ted Braden is, you know, he gets pulled over at like 78 years old. Yeah. No license, no registration, no insurance. He's pulled over for DUI right. and refuses to identify himself yeah. to the police officer. It's just, there's so much that's unusual right. about that situation. Yeah. Plus, there's just no, there's no record of Ted Braden. Right. I mean, the few things that Drew was able to find, you know, he did an amazing job because you, you could type ted braden into a search engine and yeah. the only things that are going to come up are, are podcasts that i've yeah. done or yeah. drew has done related to drew things like that yeah, sure. yeah. everything's going to be related to drew beast and nothing yeah. you're not going to find any records on ted yeah. braden yeah. which is which is interesting yeah because some of these suspects you could punch it in and you could find oh yeah they were in the white pages and yeah here's their military records and yeah rackstraw is a good example of that because he's got a you know pretty good he's got a pretty good Rackstra history is a good example of that you know coy is pretty video decent. interviews of of rackstraw i will tell you though and this is i know we're kind of we're going to get off on a tangent here but the the early rackstraw footage from like the 70s when he's getting interviewed is fucking eerie it is really it eerie. really is it I felt unclean after I watched that. The first time I saw that, and Drew, I think I think it was Drew that sent it to me. He's like, "Yeah, check out the Rackstraw stuff." I'm looking through it. It just feels weird when he's interviewed. Were you Cooper? Oh, I, I mean, I could have been. You know, it's just like I don't know, man. It just it felt weird. I felt really weird about that. 
I, you know, I'm one of those guys that can really be, I can be bought and sold pretty easily when it comes to like, hey, you know, the Earhart case is, is really the, the same thing. Uh, but really with the Cooper, with the Cooper thing and really with especially doing the book and going back through the original recordings and adding the new stuff, I really felt like I could, uh, you know, I could I could make the case that Braden and Cooper were one and the same. So I, we really tried to do that. We really didn't try to buy into the hype as much. We really tried to sort of chase down like little things and build a case because there's not going to be one. We, we talked about the tie. You know, uh, there's not going to be one big smoking gun. That that's a term that I've I got that Jen, to her credit, really you know, um, schooled me on pretty quickly because I, I started talking about oh there's smoking gun there's a smoking and it's you hear that all the time in the Earhart case. It's pure bullshit. There's no such thing as a smoking gun. We made it up. It's all bullshit, right? So there's no there's no technical legal term for that. You know, uh, DNA evidence is a big deal. Um, obviously, eyewitness testimony is a big deal, but eyewitness testimony can be askew a lot. And that's kind of why we started. We Our entry point was really the sketches and talking about like how everybody just hangs everything on those sketches. Well, what if those sketches were maybe a little bit off? I talked to Mark Zaid about that. He makes an excellent point in the book when he talks about, I even asked him the question. I think, I, I think the question, I'm paraphrase, was like, is it possible that the limited amount of people that were on the plane that got such a good look at him, like Mucklow, who sat right closer than we're sitting now, mm -hmm. is it possible that she could have been, she could have got it so wrong, glaringly wrong on the age bracket that you know this guy could have been 27 years old and Zaid was didn't even flinch? Absolutely, it happens all the time, and it does. It happens all the time. So all the stuff about him being in his mid 40s. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as probably what it was, but you know McCoy and and Rackstraw two monster suspects right or what 27 28 something like that. Yep, 27 28. You got you know you strip them from contention because they're 20 years younger than the person that was supposedly sitting next to Mucklow, but you know Mark really makes a great point and he's you know it's it's true when you research it a little bit this kind of stuff happens all the time with eyewitness testimony. It's possible that this guy might not have been in his mid-40s. Maybe he was in his mid-30s or something like that, which puts it closer to what maybe Rackstraw or McCoy could have been at that time and would put Braden and people that were in their mid-40s out of contention. But because we only have what we have, then you know you have to sort of assume that you know the mid-40s is, is what we're going on. And so many people hang their hat on that in addition to the height and you know the eye color and you know the hair you know how how you know how did it look and just all these little things and tessa in the book makes a really great point about filling in the gaps when you're in these when you're in these situations cops sit you down what did this guy look like okay he had a like you talk about he had really big ears like a really defining feature i have a huge forehead you would notice that right are you going to notice all of the other details of my you know especially if you put me in a lineup with all similar looking dudes you know, I don't know. I mean, you're going to start filling in the gaps. And I think that's what people do. Yeah. And people will tend to focus in on specific details. Like, I'm so tired of hearing debated his complexion. Mm -hmm. Like Latin, olive, swarthy, swarthy yeah. potentially yeah. of Native American descent. What what does that mean? Right. Are, are we going as, as dark as a Native American? Yeah. Or... Is this a Caucasian that was tan? Yeah. Or is it a dark-skinned guy? Yeah. And 
people will focus in. It's more to prove their specific suspect, right? Yeah, so yeah. if whatever detail, if their suspect is from Honduras, maybe they're going to lean into the <laughs> potentially Native American or of Latin descent. Yeah. Whereas if your suspect is Kenny Christensen, who's pale as can be, yeah. then maybe you're not bringing up olive or swarthy complexion. Right. And, you know, obviously we both know eyewitness testimony is not good. Mm. And you really only have Tina and Flo and potentially Bill Mitchell. Yeah. You know, you have uh, Gregory, I can't remember his first name on there, but he gives this description of Cooper that's way outside of what everyone else says. Right. Like really curly, wavy hair. He had a brown or russet suit with giant lapels. Yeah. And it's yeah. so far outside of what everyone else said that it's like, uh, yeah. Are we talking about the same guy here? We're, yeah. We don't even know. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's so much is made of the of the details of the description, and you know, to their credit, to people who are, I mean, it's yeah, you're gonna do that. You're gonna make the detail count, and I feel like that's that's what people are doing here, especially with you know specific things like like the complexion. Uh, his height is another big one. I mean, it's big. It's a huge yellow wall. He's, what goes know, against Braden? Is it height, height. and eye color? Or does Braden have brown eyes? I can't remember. Braden had like a... Uh, trying to picture his Ramparts magazine picture. No, he had like blue eyes. Kind of like bluish eyes. Uh, and and some, of the, some of the sketches said that he had blue eyes... Uh, that he might have had you know, hazel eyes and he had brown eyes. How, you know, it's it's interesting to look at that because, I mean, how many times did he actually take off his glasses, you know, when he was on the plane? I mean, I think it was, you mentioned earlier, maybe once that he actually had his glasses off. So. Yeah, he boards the plane, no glasses, passes the note, no glasses, then puts the glasses on. Right. So you'd have to have somebody who would have really zeroed in on his eyes before he put his glasses on, which is possible, sure, but I feel like, you know, once those glasses go on, he could have had black eyes on nobody. I mean, nobody, you know, you don't know. Uh, most people, you know, that's when they start looking at him. The glasses call attention when you put glasses on. If I walk into a room or something and I have glasses on, like, you know, in here or something, it's going to be like, why the hell is that guy got glasses on inside a room? You know, I get migraines and stuff, so that's why I have them sometimes. But, I mean, you don't know that. So people are going to think that that's kind of weird that guy's putting glasses on inside a flight, you know, in a plane. Uh, but I feel like... Braden's the main thing against Braden, and we do try to try to hit this head on is the height. Uh, Braden's a little short uh, for for Cooper. Braden's I think he's around five five eight uh, ish or five nine something like that. Uh, he's kind of he's kind of short, but so he's an inch or two outside of the range. Inch oh or my two gosh. Out, yeah, and that's kind of what we, what kind of goes back to what we're Stopping talking the about show. earlier. He's an inch outside of the range. We're yeah, done. <laughs> that's it, right? It's the same thing. It's like, well, okay, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the right eye color or whatever. And I feel like, well, if that's that's all you got, then you know, this guy is is you should take a, another look at this guy. And that's kind of what we do with this book. I mean, he's sitting down again. We talk about that. Uh, he had the boots on. The boots, you know, the boots probably had give gave him a little bit of extra height on him, so it's possible that that could have put him into that, you know, into that room for error area. But you're you not know? floating the idea he was wearing lifts in his shoes, right? No, I don't think so. I, I think he, I think just you have a little bit of a natural lift with like certain military boots. You're a little bit taller. That might be able to give you not an inch or so, but it might be able to get you into that area. You know, I think there's a three or four inch room for error here. It's possible I agree. that you know. You're again. Everybody's looking at him sitting down. The only person that really got a good look at him standing up, uh, and he was probably hunched over in, in a little bit, is Tina at the very end. 
And, you know, if you're looking at farther at the end, well, this guy, if you're looking 20 feet away or 30 feet down the, you know, the back of the plane or whatever, however long it was, um, it's tough. You know, it's tough for you to say, oh, yeah, he was definitely 5'10" right on the money or he was like five you know the, the the really the best thing we have is is hank birch says that when he looked when he was in full dress uniform he could look he looked at brayden he looked a little bit down at brayden not by a lot but just kind of a little bit and hank was telling me he's like you know i know that comes into comes into play later when they talk about his height and everything but you know drew talks about brayden being a chameleon and being able to you know to blend in and the, the whole idea of there being room for error in that you know what what is it five nine to six feet or what it's something like that right it's a I think pretty it's five ten to six feet five ten to six so we feet. only have a two inch window two inch room so you know if he was five nine you know and sitting down i mean you, you you know you couldn't it's it's hard it's like can you can you dismiss off that some people would say absolutely you can dismiss off of that uh eric talked about sheridan peterson and, and not you know him not being a smoker and cooper inherently being a smoker and based off that alone he has to dismiss peterson I mean, sometimes it can be as cut and dry as that, but I challenge sort of the, uh, I don't want to say the authenticity of the sketches, that's a bad word, but I, I, I challenge the fact that the sketches should be gospel. I challenge the idea that maybe it's possible that some people uh, that were doing the descriptions for the sketches maybe got a couple things wrong. Age. We talked about that with you know with with what uh, Mark Zaid said. Well, they definitely got a couple things wrong because they changed the sketch completely. Right, right. which should they tell went you from being Crosby to Cary Grant. Right, which should tell you which were two very different looking dudes. So which should tell you that okay, well, maybe they didn't have it in the bag as hardcore as they thought they did. You know, maybe they didn't have it pinned down as hard as they thought they did. If you've got room, any kind of room for error, that puts everything back in play. What will it take to solve this case to prove it was Ted Braden? Well, for Braden, I think it's going to have to be it's going to have to be DNA. Uh, and Drew's already taken the step for that. He's gotten DNA through some of Braden, uh, Braden's extended relative. Uh, and I think what Mark's is what Mark mentioned in the show, uh, w- which was very compelling. And it's in the book, too, is that, hey, if you've got any suspect that you can prove is dead, like, you know, bring me an obituary, bring me something. I'll help you pull all their military records. I'll probably try to help you get everything. You talk about there not being much on Braden. You might be right. Uh, I think if anybody in the world can get those records pulled, it's Mark's aid. And I think that in combination with uh, if they ever can extract DNA off of the tie somehow, potentially, uh, it, you know, the, the cigarette butts are... Or the know, magical missing slide of his hair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of that's wishful thinking right now. But let's say theoretically, I will say this. Theoretically, tomorrow, if the cigarette butts showed up, okay, and we, we know we'd have DNA there, depending on how they were handled, which hopefully enough, good enough to preserve some DNA, Drew's ready. He's ready. He's got the sample. He's ready to determine if it's if it was Braden or if Braden can be excluded. The first question I asked Drew, and I don't think I've the only thing that people only time I've ever said this is with Drew uh, on a show. But the first thing I, I asked Drew is, "Are you ready?" Because if you go down this road, you might not like what you find. And are you really sure? Are you really sure that you're ready to to, to find out if Braden was Cooper or not? Or are you, and are you ready to find out that maybe he wasn't? And he was just this badass Mac V. Sog special ops guy that just, you know, was fingered for Cooper because of the similarities. Uh, you know, and he said yes. And that's what made me want to go all in with him. It's like, all right, let's do it. So if Mark Zaid can pull military records, get some kind of a record, if those butts show up, I don't think they will. If they can extract tie DNA off that tie, Drew's ready. I, and that's kind of how we end 
in the book and everything, it's not really necessarily a cliffhanger. It's just like, we are ready to take these next steps. We're ready to find out. And if we're wrong and it's not Braden, hey, then we're wrong. I have no, my ego is gone. It's been gone for a long time. You know, I had this, these issues ever since I had my heart issues and all that stuff happened and all the health stuff and then stuff I'm going through with, you know, my family right now and all this stuff, all that shit just goes right out the door. Like if I'm wrong about Amelia Earhart, some theory on Amelia Earhart, then I, okay, you know, uh, same thing kind of like that Mark said, you know, he's like, look, we think it's Rackstraw because nobody's ever shown us any information that shows us it's not Rackstraw. I think Rackstraw fits. I think it works. If it's not him, then hey, tell me who it was and I'll help you get the records for them. That's the kind of attitude you need for these cases. You need attitudes like Drew has, like Nikki's got, you know, like people like that, that really are just like, hey, we're gonna follow this evidence wherever it takes us and whoever it takes us to, that's where we're gonna go. That's what we're gonna drill down on. It's gonna take DNA. It's gonna take something monstrous. Obviously the obvious things, the rest of the money shows up somehow, uh, or like another, even another 20 shows up somewhere and it's like, okay, and then you can start maybe trying to, I don't know, backwards, you know, walk that backwards potentially. I don't know how you would do that, but, it's going to be something like that or relatives, you know, like you've been told probably a hundred times in your show, they're going to have to come up and say, oh yeah, you know, he, maybe he's alive still and they're waiting for him to die. And then you're, you know, for three, two or three years from now, a hundred year old dead DB Cooper is going <laughs> to, is going to, you know, is going to make news and it's going to finally, relatives are going to be like, we've, here's the rest of the money we've known all this time. You know, no one's going to jail here. They're not going to haul this guy into prison. You know, if he shows up to the nearest FBI field office or family of his shows up and they throw the rest of the money on the table and say, we know the whole story. What do you guys want to know? No one's going to prison over this at this point. Uh, so, you know, I mean, are you really going to be the, the, you know, the FBI that's going to haul a 99 year old D.B. Cooper into, into prison and to prosecute him for this crime that didn't affect anybody physically, didn't kill anybody? You know, this is all stuff you've heard a thousand times, but I feel like that's that's what it's going to take something mo monumental with DNA. And, uh, I I'm, I'm happy that we've left it in, we've left the ball in the court of basically, you know, science to, to prove, okay, give us some DNA. We'll give you Braden's, we'll give you Braden's DNA. And you tell us, was he Cooper for one night only? Maybe. The case is solved tomorrow. It, it's Braden or it's, somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, what happens to the vortex at that point? We get the definitive answer. This is DB Cooper. Yeah. What happens next? The vortex evolves. That's what happens next. Because like I said earlier, you're going to have a hundred questions that you're going to have to get answered uh, with a positive ID on whoever this was. So let's say Braden tomorrow is proven or Rackstraw tomorrow is proven to be Cooper. Okay, now you got to figure out, well, how did he do it? How did this happen? How did this work? Where's the money? What happened in the 51 years after the, the skyjacking? Everybody's going to want to know that story. Oh, yeah. So I think the vortex evolves into trying to finish telling the story because you find a positive ID on somebody and you might have the, the chief concrete answer there. It's like the way I described this to my kid when he asked, cause he asked, he kind of asked the same question. He goes, what happens if they find DB Cooper? And it's like, what, what's going to happen to you? Like, what's going to happen? You, know, you think I'm going to like go away or something, right? Or like Amelia Earhart. And, um, I just tell him, it's like, think of it as long division, right? Long division. You can get to the answer by a calculator or something like that. You can get the ultimate answer, right? But you have to show your work. 
You have to show everything that happened underneath that long division, you know, that answer to get you to that answer. That's what's going to happen here. You're going to have to kind of discern and decipher everything else that happened in that time period, uh, you know, since the skyjacking and everything, all the fallout that's gone on since then. And so I think the vortex would just evolve and try to try to figure all that information out. I don't think it just dissolves overnight because now it's going to take a hit. I mean, people are going to be like, all right, well, there's going to be some shock and awe and everything. And that's going to be I mean, you know, you see that with every press conference that hits and all this in, in every new suspect that gets put out. You know, you, there's a little bit of a jarring shock and awe. Half the people are like, oh, shit, this is the guy. The other half of the people are like, nah, I had no way. That's not the guy. Like, what about this? What about this? What about that? No, no turkey neck, no big ears. No, you know, it's like all this like, okay, round and round we go, right? It's the same thing with Earhart, same thing with Jack the Ripper, same thing with Jesse James, you know, Zodiac, you name it. it they're not uncommon. Cooper's not special, uh, you know, and that's kind of the thing that, that I realized pretty quickly is like, oh, this case is pretty similar to a lot of the other ones that we do. It's just, you know, there's, there's different specifics, but it's pretty much the same thing. So I think, the, I think the vortex goes on. I think it evolves. I think it continues to try to discern what the story was and, uh, and fill in all the gaps that, uh, you know, the positive ID would just sort of leave us with. One thing that's wildly different about Cooper than the Zodiac or Jack the Ripper, there's hundreds of confessions. Yeah. yeah. There haven't been hundreds of confessions right. that I'm the Zodiac killer. Yeah. Why have so many people confessed to this? It's such a cool crime. No, no, I mean, obviously, and this is, it's a terrible thing to say in a way because it's, it, I'm not trying to disrespect or, or, or uh, you know, make anything, you know, make the crew, whatever the crew went through, I'm not trying to make it seem worse, you know, or better than it was or easier than it was. He absolutely, there are absolute victims here. You know, uh, he did rip off $200,000. He did potentially put, what, 36 pit passengers and five crew at extreme risk, even if the passengers didn't know it doesn't mean you, you know you're not at extreme risk if you don't know it so i feel like but it was it's such a it's such a neat story it's such a fun fun crime if i could use that word it's such a it's such a cool caper it's a heist you know why do people love oceans 11 and all these different you know heist movies and all stuff it's because it's like this guy did this on his own potentially pulled this off and got away with this money and no one ever figured out who he was and so, you know, of course, it's a crime you would want to associate yourself with in a way. It's like, wow, I, I was Cooper. I was the guy, you know, and they never got me. You know, I was the guy kind of thing. And so I think that's why it's it's just attractive. It's an attractive, uh, you know, case to be uh, pinned on somebody. And if, if you can be D.B. Cooper, man, I mean, that's everybody wants to be D.B. Cooper, I think. I mean, pe look at all the people who dress up for him as, as him as for Halloween and stuff. I mean, it's. You know, it's a cool story and everybody wants to be at the center of that story. So probably that's why there's so many confessions. You know, it's just it's just kind of like it's it's an attraction. Yeah. And it is if if we're sitting at a bar together and say, hey, man, you know what? I'm D.B. Cooper. I pulled that off. I've got a story for you. It It is cool and interesting. Whereas if I told you, hey, man, you know, that kid that was hit by a car last week. Yeah. And no one knows who did it. It was me. Right. That's you're not like, oh, that's cool. Tell me about how you got away with it. Yeah. It's like, oh, gosh, that's yeah. terrible. Or those five it. women that were murdered in Whitechapel. That was me. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, and you look at like Jack the Ripper and, you, you know, Jack the Ripper potentially had dozens and dozens and dozens of suspects, but there's only five canonically related to Jack the Ripper. And, you know, that's that's kind of what we focused on on the show. There's a there's a couple other ones pre uh, right before the canonical five takes off. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's potentially a lot. That's not a crime you want to 
you want to admit to. Zodiac's another crime you, you don't want to admit to. We're getting ready to step into that. And that's, it's horrific. You know, it's, it's a horrific case. And I mean, I remember seeing the, the, the Mary Jane Kelly crime scene photos from Jack, the, the Jack the Ripper case. And it's, it's horrific. I mean, there, there's no other word to describe it, but her, it's horrid. It really is. This case, it's a different story. It's a heist. It's a heist that was successful. And this guy got away. He never told a soul, uh, you know, as far as we know. And, you know, we don't know what happened to the money. There's so many questions that we don't have answers to. There's so many concrete questions that we don't have answers to. Uh, and that's why him and Earhart are very similar. There's so many concrete questions that we don't have answers to on the Amelia Earhart case. Why were they not able to make two-way radio communication when they were right there within 200 miles or not, you know, or under? It should have been a walk in the park. Was it because those calls were pre-recorded as part of a spy mission? Maybe, but you have to explain why they were continually pulling S5 signals. Were there multiple planes? This is where you start getting into like, you know, just ridiculous, like, you know, conjecture and speculation and all that stuff. But it's because we don't have concrete answers that all this, this stuff starts to formulate. You know, that's the reason the vortex exists is because there's not any concrete answers to anything. So you have to, so everything's on the table. Well, everything's this, up for debate. This suspect is a good suspect. Let me tell you why. Well, let me tell you why this guy, that your guy sucks. Let me tell you why my guy is great. Let me tell you why this theory works. Let me tell you why he had an accomplish, why he, why he was a woman, you know, why he, all this other stuff, you know, it's like, of course it's all on the table because we have nothing to show for it. And it's gotta be incredibly frustrating. It is to me, you know, that we have all these cases. Uh, I, part of me, I mean, I, part of me wishes that Earhart would be found because if, if, you know, if Earhart was indeed captured by the Japanese, like we we're talking about earlier and all that, I mean, she's literally, she's victim one of World War II. She's one of the original victims of World War II. If she was a spy on a spy mission, whether she was knowingly part of it or knowingly forcefully taking part of it or, or whatever it was, and her and Noonan were in on it, and they were held at gunpoint or Noonan's, potentially Noonan's head was cut off, they were kicked into shallow graves. If she died of dysentery in a jail cell, the world should know that she was an American hero, that she died prior to Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor attack, and prior to all Americans, America's involvement in World War II. So, like, that's why I want to know why, you know, what happened to Earhart. If Cooper, Cooper, I, I don't think Cooper's going to have anything that compelling or that, you know, majestic or amazing He's not about going him. to be the start of World War III. Right, right. But, you know, but people want to know, well, what happened to this guy? What happened to the money? Why did he do it? You know, the grudge, we didn't really talk about the grudge, but like the whole idea that he had a grudge. What was, who was the grudge against? Why would he have been holding this grudge? Maybe it was very personal. Maybe it's one of those things you'll find out about and you'll be like, fuck, that guy really, you know, I would have done it too. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, that's why the vortex will continue forever until there's some kind of major break. Uh, and probably afterwards too, you know, because there's always going to be something to, to debate, to discuss and to have different opinions on. Oh yeah, it, it definitely continues. You know, in the scenario you laid out, we find out exactly who it is, but we don't get to know the story. Yeah. Then everyone does pivot, or most everyone will pivot, and okay, we got to fill in the story. That's probably even find more frustrating. Out all yeah. of the, all the details of it. Well, why did he do it? We don't know. <laughs> so it's like now you got to find out. Okay, so yeah, that would be interesting to see everyone sort of just focus in on one person, and you know if. Everyone all of a sudden working as a team to fill in all these details. I think it would probably happen pretty quickly if you if we were able to determine who Cooper was 
And then again, like, like Tom said, how did the money, you know, how did the money end up on Tina Barr, the 5,800 and some change, you know, what happened to the rest of the 193, 4,000, whatever it was left, uh, you know, of that money. I think once you start answering those questions, it's going to become a, a snowball and it's just going to be, you're going to have more questions and answers. But I think, and I think if you start veering in on a suspect, the only difference there is if people are just going to refuse to concede, right? They're going to be like, no, it's not, it's rack straw. God damn, it's rack straw. It's not, it will know, be whoever, a couple of whoever people it was. That... And there will be some of that. Sure. But I think, I think, you know, the vortex has been, is, is pretty great at like, uh, you know, just following the lead leads to the letter. I think if you, if you could eliminate the, the major questions, I think you'd see some pretty special stuff happen in the vortex. I think you start seeing a lot of people work together and be like, let's just, let's just get this full story now. And you see them drill down as a unit, drill down on one suspect because you know it's one or maybe one and an accomplice or something like that. Maybe, you know, you drill down on that. I think answers come pretty, pretty hot, pretty quickly. You did a show on DB Cooper on your podcast vanished. Yeah. A dark horse. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the reaction to that outside the vortex, because I know the reaction inside the vortex. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to people like, Hey, I'm work, working with this guy, Chris Williamson, and he's putting together this new show. It seems pretty cool. And then when it came out last year on the anniversary, right? That's right. On yeah. the 50th. Yeah. And I, it was, it was phenomenal. And Thank inside you. the vortex, Everyone absolutely loved it. I don't think I heard anyone say, oh, it was lame. I didn't like it. Or, yeah. I didn't even bother finishing it. Right. Uh, what was the reaction to sort of, you know, you're, you were more popular in the Amelia Earhart mm. world prior to that. What was the reaction outside the vortex to your DB Cooper series? Oh, you know, it's interesting. That was the, it was the hottest. We had had the best numbers we'd ever had on a download, uh, on like a, a, a night, on a week, on a month, all the, all the stuff, all the metrics I used to, to measure that. And that was, uh, that was very beautiful. I mean, I, I, you know, I was my ignorance, you know, how ignorant I was to the case when I reached out to you. So I think people were drawn to the show because I really was sort of learning things as I went as sort of the audience would, would learn. Uh, obviously I knew everybody in the vortex would, would already know everything that we were going to be talking about for the most part. But for me, it's when people would, uh, make comments about, oh, I've been studying this case for 30 years and I didn't know that one little factoid. And we did that with the book too, with rabbit hole, like Anne Pellegrino, who was like an icon. It was like, oh, I, I learned things in there I'd never heard about or known about. Um, so outside the vortex, uh, you know, people were enjoying it. They were in DB Cooper is a, a draw. He's a mark big time. I mean, obviously it's a huge case as you know. So it's like, you know, that case was really popular and, uh, it's a shame Jen couldn't get on that. I know she was super busy at the time, but I think if Jen would have been on it, been in on it, it would have been even better because then we'd have Jen would have been able to cross examine Drew and all that stuff. And that would have been really fun because we don't, that's non-scripted. It's all like, just what you hear is what you get. And we had some really uh, immeasurable uh, moments uh, in the Earhart case when we did that cross-examination stuff. So, Oh, yeah, I heard a bunch of those. There was a lot of fun stuff with that and uh, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on throughout all that, too. So, uh, But I think people just really enjoyed it. Uh, it was really warmly received. And I think, uh, you know, I, I have to, to you know tip my hat to you and to everybody who, I mean, without you guys, without, you know, you stepping in and helping guide guide sort of the the ship so to speak on on what we were doing i think it wouldn't have been presented as well you know you, you start talking about 
you know, Dave and, you know, I brought in Angel Mays and Javier Leva who were not Cooper experts, but they're, you know, they're experts in their own right in their own fields and stuff and trying to set things up before we brought you, before you made your entrance into the show. And I think, um, it's, it's to the credit of, of, of the cat. I've called, I call it a cast, like, you know, the cast of the show, basically everybody who was involved in it. I'm just feeding questions to people. That's really all I'm doing. And I'm, I'm making my own observations as I go. People can agree with them or not. But, um, you know, I think, I think it was warmly received you know, all, yeah, all around. And I think it was a lot of fun and seeing the, the screenshots of people listening to it that night, you know, and all that stuff. I think you sent me one and, uh, you know, a couple other people did. I listened really, to my basement in the dark. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, we tried to make it, uh, you know, a little more, uh, you know, theatrical and a little more, you know, we, you, you do all that stuff to just kind of make people want to, you know, keep their ears on the show and listen to it, of course. But really, it's it's the content, you know, getting people like, you know, Mark Zade to return from, you know, he did the booth stuff with us and he came back. You know, that's we're only going to be as good as the cast, as the, as, as the really the people we have on the show. No one's going to want to sit there and listen to me bullshit about Cooper when I don't really know a whole lot about it. It's you guys that know, like the back of your hand, that can educate our audience. So, you know, it, for me, it was it was special because I, I you know, I'd step into a case that's not mine. Uh, you know, I, I'm an Earhart guy, as you know, and, and we've said many times tonight. But I mean, you know, for, for people to be as welcoming in their with their case and not be, oh, I'm not going to talk to this guy because, you know, I don't want to share my my knowledge or whatever with his audience. You know, it wasn't like that. It was very good. And even even the declines we got were very respectful. Like, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. I've got this going on right now. I can't do this or I, I'm going to decline. You know, it was very good. So my experience with the Vortex, I mean, I would rate it very highly when it comes to that, even though it was a very short, only three or four months, I was kind of recording intensely uh, leading up to the show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm glad it was received as well as it was. You know, that's I'm proud of that. I'm excited for a positive review of the community that is the Cooper Vortex. A lot of yeah. times people on the show are like, the Vortex, they disagree. They're all grumpy. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, nice my experience was and- not like that. I mean, it, you know, there was people that disagreed, surely. I'm sure there will be people that disagree with, you know, uh, the conclusions that we make or even don't make in the book, really, frankly. Uh, but the idea that we, we push, you know, this is a Braden, we do push Braden, but we also push about a dozen other suspects before we even mention Braden, which is pretty neat. William J. Smith, Dave Futterman takes a pretty decent sized dive into William J. Smith with us and his, his, uh, process that he's gone through with his research. And, you know, you're, you were great going through, you know, all these different people. I shot out names and you just kind of told us their stories and we had great stuff there. Uh, you know, before you get to Braden, you get to hear about Smith, you get to hear about Christensen, Rackstraw, you know, uh, McCoy, Barb Dayton, John List, you know, a bunch of people that are like, you know, really kind of far out there. Some people that are like, you know, really major players in the suspect list, you know, and then we we try to do a mixture of of everything. Um, You know, Dwayne Weber, we got some good stuff from Nikki on Dwayne Weber and Joe Weber's side of it and everything. So, you looking at the book and looking at the presentation, yes, it's a Braden, you know, we, we conclude that Braden is a strong suspect for Cooper, but by all, by all means, I think it's, it's, it's by and large, I think it's better. It's a more general show. And the book is when you read it, it's presents generally, you know, as far as like, okay, this is an exploration of the Cooper case with the idea that, Hey, maybe they've got some suspect that's new to general audiences. Uh, certainly not to the vortex, as you've pointed out, Cooper, uh, Braden's been around for a while. So, did you know you were going to do the book when you started the show or did you do the book based on 
sort of the reaction and the success of the show? I did the book based on the reaction to Rabbit Hole, actually. Was never going to write uh, a book's period. Uh, but with, with Earhart and with Rabbit Hole, people started, for a long time, people had asked me about written transcripts of the show. And I didn't want to just give out like PDFs or I didn't, I didn't want to just do it like sloppily or whatever. I wanted to try to put it into like a cohesive, tangible thing you could hold and read. And then I thought, well, what if we put retrospectives in there, put new information in there so that way it's not the same. It's not just a podcast. It's like you're getting a little extra something with the book version. Uh, than you'd get with the podcast. But I, I only wrote the Cooper book. Uh, it was a natural fit to stay in aviation and stay there um, after the the success of, of Rabbit Hole. And that was, you know, an 800 plus page book. And it's, all of a sudden it seemed like I had already been editing the Cooper piece uh, for probably about a year or so, um, halfway off and on. And so, you know, when you get to like 250 pages, that's that's nothing when you just edited, you know, 850 basically. Right. Know probably 20 or 30 times over and it's like wow 250 pages is now you fit four or five of these in one of these rabbit hole books so you know um yeah it's it's um it was done purely off of that basically yeah well is there anything we missed chris no i don't think so i mean this has been great i mean i this is you know i knew we i knew we'd do this at some point so this is uh this is really weird for me because uh you know again i i you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Cooper guy. I will tell you that I'm, this is not my case or anything, but to be on this show is, is really kind of surreal because it's been a long time coming. We've been supposed to have met a couple of times now by this point. Yeah. (laughs) Now we're sitting in my, uh, in my basement and we're doing this show and it's, and uh, we're just having a conversation and you know, this is, this conversation goes a lot like all of our off the record ones, even really, they just pretty much the same thing. We're just kind of recording. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's an honor for me. It's a big honor for me to, to take part into this. And I would, I would tell the Vortex, uh, I would send my warmest regards to the Vortex for, for allowing us to, to do that original show and to put this book out now. Uh, whether, you've, whether you're consuming it via the show and audio or you're consuming it via the book, I appreciate it. And I, I, I hope it gives you pause to look at Braden uh, under a microscope a little more aggressively. And I, I hope that we did a, a good enough job of giving people a, a snapshot of the case uh, sending them maybe your way for all the the great detail and everything, but this is that's what this book is and that's what the show was and and uh, that's what we do. We're appetite wetters for for really the real research that people might want to do um, based off of hearing something in the book that sparks their interest. Well, if people want to tell you you don't know anything about this case or you're absolutely right <laughs> on everything, yeah, or they just want to follow your work and listen to your show and read your books, yeah. where can they find you? Yeah, so you can go to uh, vanishedshow.com. That's uh, our website. That's our archive. That's where we have all the shows. Uh, we also have both books on uh, in the store there. Uh, so vanishedshow.com. You can also get both books. Uh, you can get Rabbit Hole and uh, Take the Money and Run. You can get both of those on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much anywhere online you want to get them. Uh, there is a Kindle version of uh, the Cooper book. Uh, we did not release a Kindle version for the Earhart book because that's just a task I don't want to do right now. It's <laughs> it's going to be a major editing process uh, to format it for Kindle. But the Cooper book is out in Kindle and um, and paperback versions right now, and uh, you can go pick it up in VanishShow.com, and we're on every major podcast platform. We just finished uh, our three-part series on Judge Joe Crater, which is another person people probably won't know. So we tried to take... take... I'd never heard of him before. Yeah, I hadn't either. Jen brought the case to me. We were going to start with uh, Zodiac, and then uh, just like we started with Ripper for season two. But Jen said, no, let's let's look at this one's a really crazy one too, and we did. And that led to some really unexpected things for me personally. And and, uh, yeah, so 
check out the show uh, if you like historical mystery. We're going to be covering Zodiac this year. Alcatraz, Jesse James, Jimmy Hoffa, uh, and Amy Johnson is left. Those are big, some big marquee cases. So, um, yeah, we'll continue to do this as long as the audience is there and they'll listen to the show. All right. Go follow Chris. Get his books. Listen to his show. And thank you for coming on, Chris. And uh, let's go get something to eat. Let's do it, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Go buy Chris's new book, Take the Money and Run, The Vanishing of D.B. Cooper. Also, buy his other book, Rabbit Hole, The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart. Visit his website, vanishshow.com. Listen to Vanish, Chasing Earhart, and Me and My Friends, wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Chris on social media. We have links to all that in the show notes for you. Did you solve the case? Do you know how the money got to Tina Barr? Is your father D.B. Cooper? Hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Chris Williamson for inviting me over to record in his man cave. Thank you to Russell Colbert, who once lured me into an actual cave. Thank you to Darian Osadich for letting us use his music. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex. Hijacked a plane, so we were told Then he jumped into the cold As a bourbon and a cigarette In the air, the stage is set Polite and kind, the people say It's time to make his getaway This is how the story goes About the money and the man they call me now Catch me if you can Roll up in his cold-built tight He's got enough to change his life Where he landed no one knows But from his tale a legend grows Was a cold, dark, rainy night As he walked he saw light Held his cash close to his side Just needs to catch a ride This is how the story goes About the money and the man Evie Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Phone. Little cafe outside of town. He 
walked in, he just sat down Met a man with a cowboy hat He told a friend right where he's at Into the night he disappeared And from that night a legend reared This is how the story goes about the money and the man Baby Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Forty years the secret's out The story has been told D.B. Cooper's done running now He was 80 